0: Welcome back to the podcast. Last episode, we started getting into the wintry holiday season by giving you a slew of different uh, ways to threaten your children into behaving. And in this episode, we're going to continue this wintry theme that we've established by retelling The Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen.
1: We have had several people who have asked us to cover this tale. In the past, and my like hesitation in kind of bringing it up was one. Um, it's kind of a very seasonally specific tale. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it it covers almost all of the seasons, but there's one in particular that seems to receive it, a lot of <laughs> emphasis.
0: Yeah, you uh, don't want to do Snow Queen in July episode, for instance.
1: Yeah. But then also, it's not a traditional fairy tale. We like we've more or less stuck to pretty like traditional fairy tales and haven't gotten a whole lot into literary fairy tales, except for when we covered the Sleepy Hollow. That one was. Um, And so I wanted to make sure that we had a relevant reason to talk about the Snow Queen instead of just like, oh, it's a fun one to retell. Yeah. And so I think we have enough good stuff to talk about today that it's going to be an awesome episode, not just listening to the story, but also pulling some stuff out of it.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it because I'd never actually read the story of the Snow Queen. Like the only reference point I have for it at all is the movie Frozen. Frozen which as we will find out is not a good reference at all to talk intelligently about the Snow Queen. If you went in to write your book report on the Snow Queen and only use the movie Frozen as a reference, you are going to fail so hard.
1: Really hard.
0: Instead, listen to this podcast episode and you'll get an A++.
1: Usually the people who wanted me to talk about it were either, they were like in two different camps. One camp was... People who had past knowledge of the Snow Queen and loved it as like a child. And then when people said, oh, yeah, Frozen is like based off of it, they are very angry and mad. And so they wanted like an episode kind of like about the Snow Queen because they want to hear more about the Snow Queen, not about Frozen. Right. And then on the other side, I also had people who had never read The Snow Queen, but they love Frozen, and they had heard that Frozen was based off of this story, and so they wanted to hear this story retold. And yeah, it definitely is like, you will quickly see that they are very different from each other. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I don't think either of those two groups are going to be disappointed with this episode, even though it is so different from Frozen. You can look at the Snow Queen and see very specific elements and how those elements were taken and inspired some of the key ideas and key elements in the movie Frozen. So it still is interesting to look at it from that lens, but I would argue it's not the most interesting way uh, to look about it. So, again, I'm super excited for this this episode.
1: Yeah. Um. So I think the first thing we kind of, before we get into the tale, I want to first talk about some pertinent information that we'll need kind of going into the tale, because as we're retelling it, I think people will get more out of it if they already know some stuff to kind of like be keeping in mind as like we're retelling the story. So we're, I'm going to kind of do some discussion before we retell the story So first off, the story of the Snow Queen is an invention wholly and completely by Hans Christian Andersen. So this is considered a literary fairy tale and not a traditional folk tale. And this story was published in 1844 in Denmark in a collection of stories. It was actually Hans Christian Andersen's second collection of children's Story. So this is a story that was written for children. Not all of Hans Christian Andersen's, even like short tales are for children. Mm. Um, he wrote a lot in his lifetime of like uh, poetry essays, um, short stories and stuff. And so, but he's most famously remembered, of course, for his fairy tales.
0: What are some of the other ones that we would, No, so like Little Mermaid is Hans Christian Andersen.
1: Yeah, that's another- Snow Queen. Huge one, Snow Queen. So The Princess and the Pea, The Emperor's Uh. New Clothes. Okay, but now I have to give like a caveat on those two because The Emperor's New Clothes is a retelling, but his retelling is the most famous version. Gotcha. Because when he first started to do fairy tale retellings, he did start with doing his own retellings of stories people already know. Oh,
0: interesting. He was like the Walt Disney of his day.
1: Yeah. So, let me grab. I have I have a a like 70-year-old book of Hans Christian Andersen's stories that I bought long before this. So, oh, I'm so sorry. One of his most famous that is completely his own is The Ugly Duckling.
2: Oh. I should have mentioned
1: that one, like just right off the bat, because everybody <laughs> knows that one. And yeah, I didn't... hopefully, we'll talk about the Ugly Duckling actually, like at a later date, and maybe we won't because we might not like it. Really, might not fit in with like what we talk about. But the Ugly Duckling is a really interesting story when you look at it as like a uh, when you look at it from the lens of like this was like one person's story instead of like a folk tradition.
2: Yeah.
1: So. The, the Steadfast Tin Soldier might be familiar to some people. I believe that Pixar recently did a short of The Steadfast Tin Soldier.
0: I know he's one of those ones where, like, I know, I don't know which stories there are, but I know that there are so many of his stories that, like, I'm, I'm familiar with, but I just don't know that they're him, you know?
1: Yeah, I would say the ones that people would probably be the most familiar with are Thumbelina, the Ugly Duckling, the Princess and the Pea, The Emperor's New Clothes. Some people might be familiar with The Red Shoes. though That's a story about a girl who wore enchanted shoes and it doesn't have quite a happy ending. And The Little Match Girl is a story that always seems to come up around Christmas time. And it's so sad.
0: I don't think I've ever heard that one.
1: Oh, man. So he has like a pretty famous like collection of tales and they're kind of like a mix of ones that were just retellings ones that were inspired by a lot of other stories stuff like that but the one we're talking about today is like totally his own so what's going to be fun i think for us today when we're discussing is that since this is a literary fairy tale we're able to realize like Every word that was written down by Hans Christian Andersen was used for a specific reason by him. And so yeah. you can look at the like coherent and purposeful literary tools that like he used throughout the story right to get across the point that he was trying to get across. And even though we're going to look at it in kind of a different way than what we normally talk about, artists don't live in like a bubble. They still are creating Art from the culture and the time period that they were at, even though it's not quite the same as like folk tales and the way that those form with folk tales. So, a little bit about Hans Christian Andersen. He was born in 1805 and he lived to be 71 years old. He was a Danish writer and he's regarded as the father of modern fairy tales. So he grew up poor. His father was a cobbler, so worked on shoes. And his mother was a washerwoman. And his father died when he was at a really young age. So whenever stories have like a parent's death in them, people usually just want to automatically jump to like, Oh yes, of course, because he knows that, p- that pain and he's used it in his writing, uh. which it's like, okay, maybe, but I also like, it's really like reductive, <laughs> like, because I feel like at some point or another, we all in our life have experienced loss and can write characters that have experienced loss because we have the ability to empathize. Um, and, <laughs> And so it's like yeah maybe he wrote a lot about parents being dead because his father died at a young age maybe. People also do this anytime there is a um kind of a sad love life for his characters either like unrequited love or like when love is reached there's like a sad painful ending something like that. They'll point to that he had like a sad romantic life Uh um they'll like oh he had just gotten a very sad tragic breakup letter when he wrote this story and that's why it is the way it is and there might be a lot to that and we're going to talk a little bit about that in this episode because of some of the things that happen in the story but again i find it kind of like reductive to say like oh that's that's like why So what I think is interesting about him growing up poor is that Charles Perrault, Brothers Grimm, a lot of the people who were creating anthologies of like stories that were collecting like folklore and stuff, they actually came from like kind of the upper classes, um, like bourgeoisie, stuff like that. Like they were really from this kind of different layer of society as Hans Christian Andersen. He did grow up poor and not shielded as much from just the difficulties like in life
2: mm-hmm.
1: which maybe that's why some of his characters are so tragic and <laughs> again very <laughs> reductive so in 1841 Hans Christian Andersen had gotten back from a lot of foreign travel and this is kind of a time when he started to write more stuff that was his creations. He started to really like branch away from the retellings and focus more on creating his own stories using what he knew from like folktales, but also his travels. Mm -hmm. And so he got back to Denmark and he sat down and he wrote the snow queen in five days. Oh, even though it's like, his longest piece i mean it's not a novel by any stretch of the imagination but like he did like he sat down and he pretty much wrote the like the whole thing in the five days and was like done with it was like yep it's perfect um (laughs) so there's an annotated hans christian Andersen book put out by the same publishing company that does uh, the annotated classic fairy tales that I've talked about and the annotated African-American folk tales books that I talked about. And as I was reading that, there was a quote that said, Anderson described the writing of the Snow Queen as sheer joy. Quote, it occupied my mind so fully that it came out dancing across the page. So he really felt like this was like one of his like best, most joyful pieces. And it actually... <laughs> Compared to a lot of Hans Christian Andersen stories, this one is, like, it is very, like, kind of upbeat and joyful. <laughs> but, like, that's, it's, like, that's saying a lot for him. Um, just...
0: A key phrase being compared to his other pieces as well.
1: Yeah, it's, like, okay. So Hans Christian Andersen, he was a pretty hardcore Lutheran, which is a Christian denomination, and most of the elements that end up getting removed from his stories when they're trying to redo his tales for like a larger audience are the Christian elements inside of it. But then usually once you take out the Christian elements, the character's motivations make a lot less sense. And so then the story needs to be really rewritten. And then you get further and further away from his original stories and I mean, we could do this same episode on the Little Mermaid, his story and the one made by Disney, because we're going to be able to see this because they had to do the exact same thing. Yeah. The Little Mermaid stuck a lot closer to Hans Christian Andersen's original than the Snow Queen and Frozen. Yeah. But again, what they had to pull out was all these Christian elements because they wanted to make the message of the story like more universal for people to enjoy but yeah then it it really deviates when you do that when walt disney was alive and he was starting off his animation company there were a number of fairy tales that he loved and he wanted to create as animated movies and the snow queen was one of them and along with several that he actually did because i mean snow white obviously was like the top of his list he was able to pretty easily turn that into like a uh, movie, like rather quickly, in the nineteen thirties, I believe it was nineteen thirty six that when Snow White came out, and the Snow Queen was a project that he had wanted to work on for a really long time, and they could never get the story right because it does not easily lend itself to being a movie, and as you guys are listening to us like retelling the story, I think you'll be able to see where some of like the problems are. Jeff has a film background. And so I think you especially when you think about turning this story like into a film, like there's a lot of things that you can see as like potential um, like roadblocks. So Disney had a similar problem with The Little Mermaid. And they had had Kane Nielsen, who is an artist we talked briefly about during East of the Sun, West of the Moon. He did concept art for The Little Mermaid back in the late 1930s. So we knew that back in the 1930s, they were already trying to figure out The Little Mermaid and how they wanted to do that story. But the movie ended up getting scrapped because they just could not figure out how to make it work for what they no. wanted to do. And they didn't end up doing the project until the late 1980s and so that's like a gap of like 50 years for like the little mermaid yeah and so frozen had the exact same problems where sometimes people would be like i think i have an idea for it and they would look into it and be like nope this is garbage um (laughs) so some people might know this backstory to the movie frozen chris buck was the uh writer who came up with the story for Frozen. And when he first wrote a script for it, it was titled Anna and the Snow Queen. And they thought they had a working story that they were excited to use. And it had to go through a lot of rewrites as they were trying to figure out how it would work or if it would work as a movie. And now there is kind of this like famous behind the scenes story about. Frozen where they were trying to create the storyline and and the songs alongside each other and the songwriters came up with the song Let It Go mm-hmm. and everyone loved the song so much that they realized they couldn't make Elsa a true like evil snow queen because yeah. the song fits so well with the character they created, but then they suddenly found themselves like empathizing with her so much.
2: <laughs>
1: and so the original concept of Anna and the Snow Queen as a movie that Chris Buck had come up with, like basically had to be thrown out and they had to rework the whole thing. I, I would be so fascinated to read the original script to see oh, yeah. What what his original thinking and plan i was like listening to several interviews with him um while i was researching this because i was trying to figure out maybe kind of like what they had planned yeah and so i feel like i kind of understand where they were going with it but not enough to speak confidently and i'd love to see like (laughs) i'd love to read that early script of what their plan was for that But yeah, they reworked it so much that the story became so far away from being the Snow Queen that they scrapped the title as well because they were like, no, this isn't even like, (laughs) this is more of a nod to the Snow Queen than it is like (laughs) anything else. But I just read that Disney Studios is trying to make a live action version of the Snow Queen. It's not going to be a live action Frozen they want to do a live action version of the Snow Queen. Which I'm like, best of luck to them. Uh, (laughs) I'd I'd be fascinated to see kind of like just how they are able to sort it out. Because like I said, like Hans Christian Andersen's stories, they are very religiously themed and very symbolic. And so it's hard to pull back those layers and still have his like original story Yeah, because some of the like, even some of the characters, the only reason for them like showing up in the story is to serve like a symbolic purpose. And so they're not like fully fleshed out like characters. So in this episode, we're probably going to talk a little bit about what we see in the Snow Queen and what we see in Frozen. And stay tuned to the end of the episode Because I feel like I know where the idea of Olaf comes from in the Hans Christian Andersen canon of stories. That is a theory I have not been able to find anywhere else, but I am so convinced that I'm right. Nice. And I might have a tiny glimmer of a theory of where Kristoff's character came from.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah, that'll be great. I'm excited because I love Olaf. I know he's a controversial figure, but I love him. We
1: have a friend that hates him. Yeah. Absolutely. But, yeah, I think I think people will enjoy that because he does not show up in this story at all. Do not be expecting a snowman in this story. There are no snowmen in the story we are about to tell you.
0: Which is one of its biggest flaws, if you ask me.
1: Yes, that's the biggest flaw in this creation of Hans Christian Andersen. But more to what our podcast is about, we're going to read this literary fairy tale, and we're going to talk about the elements that are influenced by traditional folk tales and mythologies this story employs lots of common like fairy tale elements and motifs where there are even going to be some characters that you're going to feel we have met before i.e. the devil <laughs> and other plot points that seem really similar. So anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a while will be reminded of East of the Sun, West of the Moon as we're reading, and that shouldn't surprise anybody. So a concept that we have to also be thinking about as we're going through this story as we're telling it is the time period in which the story was written, and that was during the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. In the annotated Hans Christian Andersen, I read a quote that says, The Snow Queen has also been framed as an allegory for adults illustrating the dangerous seductions of science and reason and predicting their defeat by the life-giving forces of Christian salvation. (laughs) So... As we're looking at this story, we're going to see that there is a lot of framing as math and science and reasoning as very, very bad and taking you away from God, which I'm telling you about now because you will notice it. We will point it out. (laughs) And if you're anything like me, it seems super odd because like, I don't think math and science and reason are evil or demonic. (laughs) And so I was confused by that line of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but when you put your head into the space of the author, it gives you some context for that, which is why I'm telling you that now. Hans Christian Andersen very much fell on the side of religion over reason. He felt like religion was more important than all of like the scientific discoveries. The scientific discoveries that were being done we're not what we're going to lead a person to like eternal salvation for their soul. And so he thought that they should be abandoned and that we should all go back to like focusing on religion. So at the time, there were people who were arguing that children needed to be taught less about fairy tales and folk tales in school because they were basically just like lies. And they needed to be taught more about science and math from a much younger age. And there is, like, a whole, like, discussion to be had there. Uh, I have a bit of a background in early childhood development, so, like, (laughs) I (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts. But at this time, some people writing for school curriculums, they were trying to start mixing the two things together, like religion and science, Or they were picking one side over the other and like really pushing that. So you had some people were talking about like fairies as being kind of like atoms. They're small (laughs) and you can't see them. And so they were in like that theory. They were like blending the folktales that the children were familiar with, with the science Uh to make it easier in theory for children to understand.
0: That's kind of cool even if it's not probably very effective but Cause <laughs> it's a it's cool like, idea
1: cuz it's like what's confusing is that they're they like they wanted to give the same kind of like weight to religion as they were giving to like science because they didn't want children to think that like science was more important than like religion
2: yeah but
1: then the other camp was like no science is more important than religion Because on a very fundamental day-to-day level, science gives us answers to the life that we're currently living. Right. So there were authors that were trying to write books about science through the lens of religion. And that's really interesting. And I see people doing that today because scientific discoveries, like, all throughout time, they bump up against, like, people's faith. And there's a lot of like friction there. For example, like when science was like, this sun is the center of our universe and religions got very like mad and upset, especially the Christian religion got very upset because they had written in the idea of earth being the center of like the universe into their theology. And so when science contradicted that, it made them very upset. (laughs) So you have people who are like, don't let your intellectualism make you think you're too smart for God. And Hans Christian Andersen is engaging a lot in, of that in this story. <laughs> and you will notice it. And, <laughs> and it is there. So also along that same lines, the Snow Queen in this story is connected to the Norse goddess Gaudi. So Skadi is a goddess of snow and ice and skiing. And we'll talk more about her later. But I wanted to point out that Hans Christian Andersen, in this story about how math and science and reason are bad, that he's also connecting those things with a Norse mythology and a pagan tradition, which is like just a classic kind of Christian thing to do. Yeah. To be like, oh, the stuff that I'm saying is demonic. Yes, that's going to be represented by like a pagan goddess (laughs) in this story. So it's like, wow, that's a lot. Also during uh, the Age of Enlightenment, children were seen as like pious and innocent and people really wanted to keep them that way. But the Queen is also very much a story about children losing their innocence and growing up and you'll notice that in the progression of the story because there's this real tension between the children needing to stay innocent and pure and like a really deep current of like sadness that that's just not like the reality of life like
2: yeah
1: we we all will age so it's also kind of a story that like is supposed to remind parents who are reading this story to their children that they need to like keep their children innocent and pure and for children to shun science and reason for religion. <laughs> so I think that's like a lot of background information I just gave you, but hopefully it's helpful like as we're going through the story. The Snow Queen is sectioned off into seven parts. And so Jeff and I are going to be doing something a little bit different today. We're going to be telling the story taking turns. That way it's not <laughs> me talking for it was it was like a it was a lot of like prep work for one person to do as like the whole story. Yeah. I knew it'd be like a Hassan Basra situation where it would just be like two hours of me just talking straight. <laughs> <laughs> and since Hans Christian Andersen has divided this story up into seven parts, we figured that would be. Kind of a nice thing to use to structure how we're going to be telling this. So we are now going to enter the story. I will be starting us off. And this story has just one of the absolute best fairy tale beginnings to a fairy story (laughs) I've ever heard. Look out. We're about to begin.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hold on to your butts. (laughs) We're going in.
1: Um, I was like, wow, buddy. So look out. We're about to begin. <laughs> and when we reach the end of the story, we'll know more than we do now. All because of an evil troll. He was one of the very worst. The devil himself. Which already I'm like, note that Hans Christian Andersen is aware that the tro- like the characters of trolls, often when Christianity meets it, they shove in the devil. So he's already, Hans Christian Andersen's aware, he knows. So one day, the devil was in a very good mood because he had just finished making a mirror. That's right. It's a magic mirror, people. (laughs) (laughs) We're two sentences into the story, and I promised that there would be obvious traditional folklore and mythological (laughs) tie-ins. So we're good. I can stop right now. I proved my point. (laughs) So the devil has made this magic mirror. And this mirror could shrink the image of whatever was good and beautiful down to almost nothing. And then anything that was worthless and ugly was magnified to look even worse. So this is a crazy funhouse mirror <laughs> invented by the devil. So Hans Christian Andersen said, in this mirror, the loveliest landscapes looked like boiled spinach.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very telling what he's thought of spinach was.
1: Yeah, he's like, disgusting. Disgusting. Your
0: first problem is you're boiling it. If you want some delicious spinach, you got to saute it with some butter in a pan, Hans.
1: Oh my goodness. Delicious. So when you looked at people's faces in this mirror, it would be all deformed. If they had a single freckle, that would just be all that was covering their whole face. So just a total caricature of like the parts you're most insecure of yourself. And notice that this... Um, This mirror was supposed to be like, like, oh, it's a mirror of truth, except it's not real truth because it it shows the worst in things, just like science (laughs) shows the worst in things. So anyway, the devil absolutely loved his mirror. And so he was showing it to all of his pupils at devil school. (laughs) A school which he ran, which I'm like, <laughs> I love it. And notice also the only time they talk about like school in this whole story is the devil <laughs> as yeah. the school.
0: I think they sent me some, uh, you know, recruitment material when I was looking around for colleges. Devil you. <laughs>
1: Okay, so the devil was showing all the little demons this, like, amazing mirror that he'd created, and they thought that it was the coolest thing ever, and they were picking it up, and they were flying it around to all these different places so that they could, like, look at the places through, like, the mirror and just, like, laugh at how ugly everything was, and they were just, like, going up to people and, like, laughing at how ugly all the people were. So the demons decided that it would be a great idea to show the mirror to the angels and to God in heaven. I guess so that he would be, they could be like, look, that beautiful world that you created. It's actually super ugly and gross. Look at it. God. (laughs) (laughs) So they started flying up with this mirror higher and higher up into heaven. And as they are flying, the higher they get, the more the mirror is like shaking, I guess because like a demonic item can't get that close to heaven. I guess is like the logic there. Sure. So they were flying and flying and it was like shaking and shaking in their hands. And all of a sudden it just shook so hard. It shook right out of their hands and it crashed down to earth and shattered into a hundred million billion pieces. Which this should either remind you of Icarus flying too close to the sun or also to the Tower of Babel in the Bible. So... Getting some references back there. So after this mirror shatters into a hundred million billion pieces, you would think, oh, the mirror's broken, it's gone. Nope. Now that it's broken, it's even worse than it was before because the pieces were broken into a bunch of different size pieces. So the smallest shards were like the size of like dust and sand, but they had as much power as the original mirror at making things ugly. And these were flying off into the breeze and they were getting lodged in people's eyes or in their hearts. So Uh it's uh, yeah. So it says a little splinter from the mirror landed in the hearts of some people. And that was really dreadful because then their hearts became as hard as a chunk of ice, which I'm like, the Hmm. movie Frozen. (laughs) It just makes me think of like, when like that, like grandpappy troll or whatever, he was like, oh, if it's in the head, like that's one thing, but the heart is not so easily changed or whatever. Yeah. Cause yeah, it's like, okay. So when they would get lodged in someone's eye, everything they'd see would be ugly. The whole world would look like broken and ugly. And then if it got in their heart, they became cold hearted and cruel. Some of the pieces of the broken mirror were bigger. And so they became repurposed as like window panes that then made the view out of your window ugly all year round. And when your friends came over and you saw them from like inside the house, you'd be like, ew, why would I be (laughs) friends with people like that? And so people were getting like angry and cynical and bitter. Um, This next line I think is really telling. It said, other pieces were turned into eyeglasses and that caused a lot of trouble because people put them on thinking they would see better or judge more fairly and like at this time like usually the people who are wearing eyeglasses were people were who those could afford nerds eyeglasses? Who cared eyeglasses
0: science
1: Yeah, or people who cared about science and, like, going to university and reason and philosophy and all that stuff. Just saying. So it was like a little pointed remark that it's like, like, oh. And some people put on their eyeglasses and then thought they could judge better or more fairly, but they couldn't. (laughs) So anyway, the troll devil thought that this was hilarious. He'd made this magic mirror that he'd had a ton of fun with and now the mirror was broken and it was even better than it was before. And he laughed so hard that his sides split, which I think is hilarious since in folklore, trolls are prone to bursting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when feeling strong emotion, that's true.
1: Yeah, they're like, I'm so happy. And he explodes. Um, And then... It says, now let's hear what happened next. And now we're going to finally get to hear from Jeff.
0: Yes, I'm here. I'm not just a laugh track in the background. So now that we're through with that little prologue, meanwhile, in the big city, there are so many houses. It's so crowded that people rarely have enough room for a garden beside their house. They usually have to just settle for like a flower pot outside their window. And in one such big city, there lived two poor children whose garden was just a tiny bit larger than a flower pot. And it makes a big point to say that these were not brother and sister, but they were as fond of each other as if they had been, which I'm like, that's a weird thing to point out. But remember, and it takes a while into the story before we learn their names, but I'm just going to tell them to you now because I find that really annoying. The boy's name was Kai. And the girl's name was Gerda. So growing up, their parents lived in these houses that were basically adjoining. And there was a little rain gutter that ran in between them, between one window and the other. So to get between the houses across this window, all you had to do was jump. So these kids would basically just jump across the gutter in between their house windows back and forth to come and visit and play with each other. But outside of these windows, each family had like a big flower box with plenty of room for herbs but also for a little rose bush. And, you know, these boxes were really up high. The kids weren't allowed to play on them, but they would go and they would put their little footstools out under these boxes and just play together all the day long. And in the winter months, the windows were so frozen over with ice because it got so cold that they would have to like heat up copper pennies on the stove and hold them up against the window to create these like little circular peoples that they could look out and like look at each other through these things, which I thought was a kind of like cool little kid thing to do, uh, you know, melt little peoples to look at each other. Um, and
1: already like they are trying to like emphasize the fact that like he- to be together, they have to overcome like the snow like yeah. they have to overcome like the ice and the winter and then Yeah, like, in the like summer it's like, super
0: easy. The barrier yeah. is like really easy to overcome between them. They just have to jump this little gap, but in the winter it's like the ice is there and to even see each other they have to like melt Do a hole through with the penny. Which is
1: like it's such like a sweet little mental image of just like yeah. these kids like heating up these little coins so that they can make a little peephole in the winter. Yeah, window.
0: and it said in the story too it's like, you know, there'd be one eye looking out out one of these little peepholes and another little eye of the girl looking back at each other like fondly or whatever.
3: Mm.
0: So on one of these very snowy, cold, wintry days, there was snow swirling all around outside. And the grandmother said, the white bees are swarming out there, which sounds like granny's been hitting a little of the LSD again, seeing things (laughs) that aren't really there. But the little boy, Kai, is like, oh, do they also have a queen bee? Because he knew that in real life A beehive also has a queen bee. And the grandmother's like, actually, yeah, they do. And she hovers in the thick of the swarm. She's bigger than all the others, and she never lands on the ground. And on a cold winter night like this, you can see her flying through the streets and looking in the windows. And the glass of the houses freezes over as if it was covered with flowers. And, you know, Kai and Gerda were like, oh, my gosh, yeah, we've seen that. We've seen when the ice covers over the whole windows. And so because they'd seen this with their own eyes, they knew that it was true. You know, after all, they were having to like melt holes with the pennies to mm-hmm. even see each other. And the little girl realized, oh, this is the Snow Queen. And so she's like, oh, is this Snow Queen able to come into the houses? And the little boy's like, Puh, yeah, let's just see her try. I'll throw her on the stove and melt her right up. And the grandmother's <laughs> like, oh, you sweet little children. And she just keeps on telling them these kind of fantastical stories. And so later that evening, when Kai was back home, he climbed up on the chair by the window and he was looking out through that little peephole and he saw a few little snowflakes still falling out. And one of them, a really big one, landed right on the edge of one of the flower boxes until suddenly it turned into a woman wearing a long dress made of white gossamer that was so fine and sheer that it looked like millions of sparkling snowflakes. Beautiful. Which that's what Kai thought. like thought she was so beautiful and elegant, but she was made of... This like sparkling, dazzling ice. But at the same time, she was alive and moving around and her eyes like glittered so bright, says like bright stars. But there was nothing that was like peaceful or calm about them. So kind of like put Kai on edge. And she nodded towards the window, seeing Kai in there and started beckoning to come out. But he was like so freaked out by this whole thing that he just like jumped down from the chair. And then as he stood up to look back out, it, it, looked like there was just a big bird that was flying by the window. But the next day was like a clear day, but cold, but everything started to melt. And then as time passed, it became spring and the sun started shining. Green shoots sprouted up from the ground. Birds started building their nests. People were opening their windows. And once again, these little kids were able to sit in their garden up high and jump between each other's houses just like they could have before. And they say too that for whatever reason, the rose blossoms were unusually beautiful that summer. They were just the greatest rose blossoms you'd ever seen.
1: And I'm going to point out right now, before you actually get to like this little poem, that roses as a topic in folklore mythology are a whole topic within themselves. It gets a lot. But here, there's a very long mythological history associating flowers with love and also ephemeral beauty. And that's kind of in the story. But Hans Christian Andersen also is linking the roses to the saving power of Jesus Christ. It sounds like I'm, it sounds like a pretty big claim, but we will see (laughs) when we get to the end of the story or even throughout. Hans Christian Andersen is linking the roses to the saving power of Jesus Christ. So I'm putting that there so that as we go through, (laughs) people will already know like what's about to be going on.
0: An example of that too, is that when Gerda sees these roses, she remembers a verse from a hymn that she'd heard that talks about roses. And it made her think about her own flowers. And the verse goes down in the valley where roses grow wild, there we can speak with our dear Christ child. The children, you know, uh, Kai and Gerda held hands, kissed the roses and looked up at God's clear sunshine, speaking as if the Christ child were right there with them.
1: And that was like an exact quote yeah, from I the did, story. So <laughs> I, I, I I just want people to know it wasn't like...
0: Uh, I, I was not emphasizing any of that. I was just reading exactly what was written there. Yeah. So laying it on pretty thick there, which was interesting. And so these summer days were great. It was, quote, heavenly to be outdoors near the fragrant rose bushes, which never seemed to stop blooming. Again, another direct quote. So one day, Kai and Gerda were looking at a book with pictures of birds and animals, a book that was not the Bible.
1: It was science.
0: <laughs> Suddenly, as the clock on the church struck five, which I thought was just an interesting detail, they're like five o'clock on the dot, Kai yelled out, and he was like, ow, what the heck? Oh, man, something just stung me right in my eye. Oh, man, and there's something in my heart, too. It's like, oh, snap, we know what that's all about. It was those particles from the mirror, the troll's mirror, our narrator says. (laughs) Our narrator screams to himself. And I love this part too, another direct quote. You remember that terrible mirror, don't you? And how it could turn everything great and good into something small and hideous while evil and wicked things were enlarged and any flaw became instantly visible. Like, yeah, buddy, we just talked about it like a couple pages ago.
1: Yeah, like th- the story isn't that long. <laughs> like, we remember from right before this.
0: But one of these evil pieces had landed right in Kai's heart and soon his heart would turn into a lump of ice. But it didn't hurt anymore. But despite that, those pieces were still in his heart and in his eye. So because of that, he started to see the world a little differently. And he started making fun of Gerda, saying that she looked stupid when she cried. He started to think like he noticed all the flaws on the roses between their houses. And he started like kicking them down and he tore them all out of the flower box and just generally started being a jerk.
1: I wanted to point out that he specifically was finding flaws in all the roses. Yes. Which I'm like, ahaha. Ha. <laughs> and this moment too is also written about a lot in different essays about how this is also a part of a transformation of growing up that like Kai can also be seen as acting like a typical adolescent boy that like he's just
0: going around destroying stuff for fun. Well,
1: well, that he's suddenly just like, this is dumb. All oh, this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and just kind of being like, I don't want to look at your like babyish books anymore. I don't want to like play like stupid little games with you, Gerda. Yeah. It, it's like part of that becoming more than just a, like a child. Yeah. Which again, this time period to be childlike. And innocent was good. And then to kind of grow up was seen as like a loss.
0: Yeah. Which is interesting that you say that too, because like some of the other things that he specifically is kind of being a jerk about was he would always interrupt his grandmother's stories. Like the kind of weird stories that she would tell where she thinks snowflakes are bees and stuff and be like, Oh, but well, actually they're not bees. They're just crystallized pieces of ice. Grandma, you don't know anything.
2: About science.
0: Yeah. So he would just always be interrupting her and like seem like probing the logic of the stories. And he started doing this, I thought was interesting. He started doing these like impressions of people around town. It started with his grandma, but then it grew to other people. And because he was able to see their flaws, like we talked about, like a caricature, he was able yeah. to pick on these elements that he was able to do impersonations of. And more than that, the people in town started to see this as a sign that, oh, he was really smart and really observant that he could see these things so well that he could do these. Like, awesome impressions. He should go yeah. on SNL. But SNL would not be invented for at least 120 more years. So one winter day when the snowflakes were falling down, Kai went outside with his magnifying glass. And he started kind of letting the snowflakes fall on. And he's, like, looking at him and saying, oh, wow, they look so cool. Like, when you can see him bigger and he's trying to get Gerda to see it. She doesn't really see him that interested and he's like, oh, these snowflakes are way cooler than your stupid flowers. It's like, they're perfect. They have no flaws. They're just perfect as long as you can keep them without them melting. And Kai, apparently becoming a big fan of the snow these days, showed up a little later and he was wearing like big gloves and he had a sled strapped onto his back and he took it down to the square where it said the boldest of boys were hitching their sleds up to farmer's wagons and like being towed around by them for a while. And Kai thought that looked super fun. So just as he's deciding he wants to give this a try, a huge sleigh pulls up. And it was completely white all over. And sitting inside was one person that was wrapped in a thick white fur coat wearing a fancy fleecy white hat. It's like styling. Mm Mm-hmm. So Kai quickly fastens his sled to the back of the sleigh and it takes off. And so he's riding down the street one after the next and it's going faster and faster. And the snow starts like pouring down and it's pouring down so hard that when he holds up his hand, he can hardly even see his hand in front of his face. That's how thick the snow is. But the sled just keeps plowing on and on and on. And so he's getting a little freaked out. So he drops the rope that has hissed him to this sleigh and he's trying to like let his sled Become detached from it, so he can stop, but even though he unhitched himself, he just keeps getting dragged along and is like somehow still secured fastly right to this this sleigh, and so he starts yelling as loud as he can, but no one can hear him, and the snow is just swirling around him stronger and stronger and stronger, and he was so terrified that he tried to say his prayers, but he couldn't remember anything but his multiplication tables. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny
0: It was like, oh, our father who art in heaven Two times two is four the, Wait, no, that's not right <laughs> I love that uh, but So the snowflakes kept falling And as they're falling, they're growing bigger and bigger Until they're the size of these like big white hens And suddenly these snowflakes seem to like come alive As these hens, and they're jumping out of the way And the big sleigh finally comes to a halt and the driver of the sleigh, who again is wearing this big white fur coat and a fancy fleece hat, stands up. And he realizes for the first time that it was a woman. And her fur coat and her cap were made out of pure snow. And she was tall, slender, and brilliantly white. It was the Snow Queen. She's like, we've arrived safely. But you must be freezing. Come crawl under my bearskin coat. But he was like, she's a liar because... It just said that it was made out of ice. It's not a bearskin coat. Anyway, (laughs) she's like, oh, you must be freezing. Come, crawl under my bearskin coat. And so she invited Kai to sit down in her sleigh beside her. And she wraps this fur coat around him. And it feels like he's sinking into a snowdrift. Instead of warming him up, it makes him colder than before. And so the Snow Queen is like, oh, are you still cold? And she gives him a kiss right on the forehead. And that kiss was colder than ice, which went straight to his heart, which was already halfway to turning into ice in the first place. And so Kai felt like he was dying, but only for a moment. Because then he became quite comfortable, and he didn't even notice that it was cold all around him anymore. And all of a sudden...
1: Which I'm like, that that sounds like hypothermia.
0: (laughs) Son, you are dying.
1: Like, you are dying if you suddenly feel comfortable and cozy and sleepy... That's a warning sign.
0: That you are not in a good place. No. But because he's comfortable not thinking about how cold he is anymore, he remembers what's most important to him, and that's my sled, my sled, don't forget my sled. <laughs> Rosebud. <laughs> Which, oh my gosh, Rosebud. I didn't even think about the fact that Rose so Bud. Yeah. Oh my like gosh, w- man. Now Citizen Kane is taking on a whole new meeting as well. You're like,
1: oh no, Citizen Kane.
0: So the Snow Queen kissed Kai once again. And in a flash, he forgot all about Gerda, grandmother and everyone else back home. And she said, well, that's the last kiss you'll get or else I might kiss you to death. And I imagine she just kind of (laughs) like chuckles to herself a little bit sinisterly.
1: Sinisterly. Yeah, there is is a sinister undercurrent of sexuality in this story.
0: Yeah, I'm here for it.
1: Yeah, I'm like, you will definitely notice (laughs) and pick up.
0: Except for the fact that the kid's a child. That makes it kind of creepy.
1: Well, he's on his way to becoming a man.
0: (laughs) True. And Kai looked at her, and she was so beautiful. He couldn't imagine a wiser, lovelier face. And to him, she didn't seem like she was made of ice anymore like she had when she first appeared in the window and scared the crap out of him. And in his eyes, which again are pierced with a piece of the devil mirror, She seemed perfect, and he wasn't afraid of her anymore. (laughs) And so, bragging to try to impress her, he told her that he could do numbers in his head, even fractions, and that he knew the square mileage for every country as well as how many inhabitants. You know, all the sexy stuff like that.
1: (laughs) Women are here for that knowledge.
0: (laughs) So, and I quote, they flew over forests and lakes, over land and sea, Beneath them, the wind blew cold, wolves howled, and the snow glittered. Black crows screeched above them, but way up high, the moon was shining brightly and clearly. Kai fixed his gaze on it all through the long winter's night, and during the day, he slept at the feet of the Snow Queen. Part three.
1: Before we get to part three, <laughs> <laughs> I want to say it's, it's interesting, and it was noted in the annotated... Hans Christian Andersen, that they mention wolves and then crows, both of which are animals that are associated with Odin, especially like crows, ravens, corvids. Yeah. Odin had two ravens and their names mean thought and memory, which was what Kai has just lost ah. when the Snow Queen kissed him. Yeah, He lost all of his memories of like his family. And so those are just kind of little, like, elements that are, like, peppered in. It's to make allusion back to parts of Norse mythology.
0: Interesting. That is cool.
1: Part three. All right. So third part. Again, I love how this, like, goes back as if it's so long that we're not going to be able to remember where, like, that stuff was happening. But he says, quote, how was little Gerda managing now that Kai was gone? (laughs) He's like, now back to the cottage. So obviously Kai's family was really upset when he did not come home after he was out playing. And so they went searching for him everywhere. They questioned the kids that had been out and sledding and no one knew. The boys that had been out sledding said that they had seen him with a beautiful white magnificent sled going fast but they said it took him right out of the town gates and so no one knew what had become of him so many tears were shed and little gerda cried long and hard so everybody was sure that he was dead and that he must have like drowned in the river that was like right outside of town because like, basically, if he had, like, let go of the sled and, hit yeah. like, of the Snow Queen's sled and his little little sleigh had kept going, he would have been <laughs> drowned in the river or, like, frozen out there. And in the cold, there was nothing that anybody re- could really do for him but wait until spring. And so that's what they did. So when spring came and it was warmer and the sun was shining... Little Gerda went outside and she just looked up at the sun and she kind of mournfully said, Kai must be dead and gone. And no. the sunshine answered back and said, I don't think so. <laughs> Which I'm like, <laughs> like, like, oh, okay. And so she looked at the little swallows, the little birds, and she was like, he is gone and dead and they said, we don't think so. <laughs> and so since all of them were like disagreeing with her, she was starting to believe that maybe they were right and that he wasn't really dead. So she put on her brand new red shoes. I think it's interesting that Hans Christian Andersen used the word red shoes because he had has written a story Called The Red Shoes, (laughs) the same year that he had written The Snow Queen.
0: The Red Shoes. I'm going to make that my thing, my signature element in every story that I tell. Red
1: Shoes, yeah. But in that, like in the other story, he was kind of using that to kind of show a selfishness on the part of the character. And in this Mm -hmm. one, we'll see what Gerda does with her shoes. She had got these brand new, beautiful shoes. And you'll remember in the story, she was not rich. She was not wealthy. And so these were like a really like meaningful present that she had probably gotten around like sometime in like Christmas time. And so she was like, I'm going to take these new shoes down with me to the river and I'm going to ask the river to give Kai back, which I'm like, that is a very like innocent and sweet, adorable. Kind of like sad, yeah, like thing to think. So early the next morning, Gerda kissed her grandmother goodbye while she was still sleeping. And I also want to point out they never say whose grandmother this old woman is. Yeah, they make it sound like she was just a communal grandmother. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's like maybe they were cousins.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I it hope was, not. That was cool back then, I guess. So it's like I don't know. So she kisses grandmother goodbye and she puts on her red shoes and she walks herself out of the town gate over to the river. And when she got to the river, she asks, is it true that you've taken my playmate? I will give you my red shoes if you bring him back to me. Obviously a very symbolic gesture since rivers don't wear shoes. (laughs) I was like, sweetheart, why would, why would the river want your shoes? Um, But it was this, like this show of like, just selflessness of like, I, I will give up something that's precious to me. If you will give something that's more precious to me back. And so she took the shoes and she threw them into the river and the shoes. Got pushed right back up onto the shore. And she was confused because it seemed as if the river was not accepting her shoes. And she was like, maybe the river didn't really take Kai. And just to make sure, I will throw them in deeper into the water in case I just didn't throw them deeply enough. And so she went over to where a little boat was sitting by the reeds. And she climbed into it and went to the far end of the boat, not realizing that the boat was not tied down. And so when she got to the other end of like the boat that was sticking out furthest in the water and she threw her shoes, it unmoored the boat from the side and propelled her into the river. And the boat starts to sweep her down the river And she looks and she can see her little red shoes behind (laughs) her in the water trying to keep up with the boat. But the boat starts moving faster and faster and faster. And this is also a kind of symbolic moment in the story where Gerda has now left home and she is being swept onto an adventure, which might seem similar to East of the Sun, West of the Moon. (laughs) adventure wise so she's decided that she is going to go on this quest sort of the boat also <laughs> you know things helped her a lot so the boat is going down faster and faster and she is looking around and the two sides of the river were beautiful as she's going further down She's seeing more and more just, like, lovely flowers, giant trees, animals coming to the water to drink out of it. Everything is just looking very, like, picturesque and beautiful, but there's not a person in sight. She is alone. She has entered a new realm. So, all of a sudden, Gerda is being forced onto this journey where she has to grow up really fast. So. Kai has had a moment where he's being forced to grow up with the stuff in his eye. So a cynical kind of growing up, but she's kind of like being propelled on this like journey where she's had to grow up. So Gerda thinks herself, Oh, maybe the river is going to carry me to where Kai is. So she's still like, Oh, the river is my friend that is like (laughs) helping me. This is, this is the solution to my problems. So she, started to just gaze around as she was going past all these like different things, trying to figure out, you know, where she was when she should get off. So pretty soon she starts going by a big cherry orchard. We're not going to talk about cherries people. so... (laughs) So she's going past this big cherry orchard and she sees this little house that with a little thatched roof and sitting in the middle of this like cherry orchard. And she's like, oh, there must be like a person there. So she starts shouting to them. And this little old woman comes out of the house. At first, you might think, oh, little old woman in a little cottage thatched roof in the middle of like, (laughs) fairyland nowhere oh no this is like a Hansel and Gretel situation or like a Baba Yaga type of situation but people have like floated the idea that this woman fits better as like a Greek goddess Demeter the goddess of agriculture and uh, fertility because it is springtime She's in this cherry orchard. So it all kind of fits. But she's obviously very different of a magical woman from the Snow Queen. So this old lady comes out and she's got a little cane. So she walks over to, you know, as this boat's going past and she leans out and with the crook of her cane, she catches the boat (laughs) and she pulls Gerda in and she's like, Oh, my little poor child, what are you doing out here? How did you end up in this river drifting so far into the wide world? And so, you know, Gerda's happy that she's like seeing somebody. Maybe this woman can help. So she pulls Gerda out of the boat. And it's like, you poor little child, what is going on? Come inside. Let me clean you up. Let me help you out. And so, you know, Gerda's so happy and relieved to see this woman. She starts, you know, telling her all that's happened. And she's being gently led inside this house. And once they get inside, the little old lady turns around and locks the door.
2: Oh, no. (laughs) So I'm like,
1: no, don't be creepy, lady. So Gerda goes into this Little old woman's house and is being comforted by this old woman who is just like, oh, here are some cherries. Because obviously she has a ton because she lives inside of a cherry orchard. <laughs> yeah. So Gertis sits down and the lady starts to feed her some cherries and was like, oh, look at all the flowers that I had. Aren't these flowers the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Each one of them has a story to tell. which i'm telling you guys right now she's not lying those story, those flowers all have a story to tell so while gerda is sitting down eating some cherries she starts to feel not so afraid and the old woman pulls a comb out a golden comb it's like oh fairy tale magical object there's a lot of little objects that just get like a brief mention in the story they're like peppered throughout it's like a fun little easter egg game (laughs) so she's just like brushing gerda's hair and like listening to this little child talk and she said i've often wished for a sweet little girl like you we're going to get along quite well which i'm like (laughs) wow that's terrifying (laughs) so the longer that this old lady brushes her hair the less gerda can remember kai Or why she's even in this old woman's cottage at all. Because this old woman knew magic. (laughs) It says she wasn't a wicked witch. She just dabbled in magic to amuse herself. (laughs) (laughs) And she really, really, really wanted to keep Gerda there with her. So she went down to the garden and she pointed her cane at all of the rose bushes and told them to shrink back down into the earth because she knew that seeing those rose blossoms would remind Gerda of Kai. So those little roses went down into the earth and the old woman didn't have to worry anymore about Gerda remembering Kai and wanting to run away. So this woman, to me, is absolutely, like, a symbol of, like, arrested development. Yeah. Where, I don't know, there's, like, a stage, like, when children are are kind of, like, realizing that they're not kids anymore, but they don't fully want to let go of stuff. People will notice that, like, kids, they're, like, getting older, but they don't want to throw away, like, old stuffed animals or... They still want to keep some toys that they don't play with anymore, but they like aren't quite ready to like let them go.
0: Yeah. I'm going through that stage about now myself, You're- so <laughs> I can understand.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, Cause like, yeah, I mean, I, you joke, but I was kind of thinking about that as I was reading this part, because it's like, you know, having like your mom, like brush your hair for you or bake you cookies and like, just be like, Oh, the snacks are on the table. Like oh, why don't you go have a nap? Like somebody that stage of life where you realize like it's nice having somebody taking care of me. I really like somebody taking care of me. That's a wonderful stage to be in. But at the same time, you also are like I don't want to stay in that same place. Yeah, you do want to grow up. But it is like kind of, kind of like a bittersweet moment. That's what this like woman. Even though it's like slightly sinister, it just reminds you of like kind of that stage of growing up of very much like. I want to be taken care of. I want somebody else to worry about everything else while I take naps and eat (laughs) delicious food that someone else makes. I want that. But at the same time, I also want to be, like, fully in charge of my own life. So the old woman showed Gerda, like, around the flower garden. And it was the most beautiful flower garden that Gerda had ever ever seen in her life. All the flowers were blooming in full bloom, even though some of them weren't necessarily like spring blooming flowers. Some (laughs) of them were like later season blooming flowers, but they're blooming anyway. And Gerda was just so excited to be out playing in the garden until the sun started to sink behind the tall cherry trees. And then the old lady brought her inside and fed her and then put her to bed in just a lovely bed with red silk comforters. I'm like, "Mm."
2: (laughs) sounds cozy.
1: Like "Mm, pillows and duvets and just, mm." and then she slept and it says she had dreams as lovely as those of a queen on her wedding day, which I'm like, a queen on her wedding day. There's not a lot of sleep going on. (laughs) 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 making nasty jokes so it says the next morning and for many days after that gerda played in the warm sunshine among the flowers she didn't know how long she was there but she just went around and talked to all the flowers But even though she could name every single flower that was there, she felt like someone was missing and she couldn't figure out like who was missing from this garden. So she was out helping the old woman with the garden one day and she looked up at the old woman's sun hat that she was wearing and the sun hat had paintings of flowers all on it and the most beautiful flower on the sun hat was a rose. (laughs) The old woman had forgotten that she had had a rose on her hat when she had made all the other ones disappear. And so Gerda looked up at the hat and she was like, that's a rose. Why are there no roses here in your garden? And so she ran around searching the flower beds and she could not see any roses. And then she sat down and started crying because she, I guess, knew in her heart that she needed to see roses, even though she hadn't quite. Figured out what was going on. So right. the hot tears fell on the spot where the rose bushes had disappeared. And when Gerda's warm tears moistened the earth, those rose bu- bushes suddenly shot back up. Foreshadowing. <laughs> just telling you right now. <laughs> it would be so funny to just be like reading a story and for it to be like, foreshadowing. <laughs> and be like, oh, thank you. So they popped up and they looked like they were in full bloom, just like they had on the day they disappeared. So Gerda just put her arms around the bushes, which I'm like, ouch.
0: Yeah. Every rose has its thorn.
1: Yeah. So maybe don't hug so tight, Gerda. Um, So it says she went and she kissed every blossom. And I just want people also to uh, pay attention to how often things get kissed in this story. Because she, like, kisses her grandmother goodbye. Uh, Kai gets kissed by the Snow Queen, and that's what, like, starts to freeze him. So she's kissing these little rose blossoms and thinking about all of her lovely roses that she had back home, which then made her think of Kai. And then she realized, oh, no, I've been here far too long. I should have been looking for Kai. And so she turns and she looks at the roses and she said, do you know where he is? Is he dead and gone? And the roses said something which is a little creepy. They said, "No, he's not dead. We have spent time under the ground with all the dead people, and Kai was nowhere in sight." <laughs> which a little creepy but also helpful. Yeah. Um there's a lot of stuff that Hans Christian Andersen says where I'm like, "That was dark. But thank you for being here."
0: <laughs> yeah. And that was definitely one of them I was like, "Oh. Oh. Oh.
1: All right. <laughs> so gerda was so excited to hear this and so she decided to go and maybe get some helpful information from the other flowers and i'm gonna preempt that by saying they did not have any relevant information (laughs) they all wanted to tell like little snippets of like fairy tales and fables that they themselves are in Uh uh-huh and I'm not gonna go into all of those right now because it's just like a lot. But she talked to a tiger lily. I will I'm gonna read you one just because I'm like, oh, you'll want to hear this. Um so she talks to tiger lilies, they tell a story about themselves. She talks to morning glories, they just tell a story about themselves. She talks to daisies, and they tell a story about themselves. Then she talks to hyacinths. And the hyacinths, (laughs) hyacinths.
0: That's a hard one.
1: Tell a story about themselves. But before, I do want to point out that hyacinths are usually linked with death. There is an old Greek mythological story about them. And so the flowers have always kind of been a symbol for dying early and ephemeral Beauty and the ephemeral nature of life itself, Uh which I'm like, that's a lot for just say. Like, what do the hyacinths have to say? And the word is supposed to trigger all this like back memory of mythology. Yeah, but but I'm gonna tell you what the what these flowers told to Gerda. There once lived three lovely sisters, pale and delicate. One wore a red dress, the other a blue dress, and the third sister's dress was white. They danced hand in hand in the clear moonlight right near a glassy lake. They were not elfin folk. They were human children. The air was so sweet that the girls vanished into the forest. The scent grew stronger. Three coffins came gliding out of the woods across the lake, and the girls were lying in them. Fireflies hovered about them like small flickering lights. Are the dancing girls asleep, or are they dead? The fragrance of the flowers reveals that they are corpses and the evening bell tolls for the dead. Uh like, thanks for oh, that. Dang
2: Hans Christian <laughs> Anderson
1: Jeez, this is a story reading it out loud to your children, and it's just like Hans, what, what's what's going on, buddy? You okay? <laughs> He was not okay is the answer to that question. Um, But anyway, so Gerda heard this story and she was like, oh no, are you trying to tell me that Kai is dead? And they were like, no, we're just telling you our favorite story. (laughs) And like, she did this with like all the flowers where she was like, wait, are you trying to tell me something? And they're like, no, we're not. Which is why I'm skipping so much of the stories. (laughs)
0: Because again, not relevant.
1: Not relevant to what we're talking about today. But very interesting. So she talks to Buttercups. They did the same thing to her. And, like, even in the story, Gerda was like, it's no use asking the flowers for help. They just sing their own songs and they haven't been able to tell me anything. So then she goes to another flower and asks it a question. She goes to (laughs) a narcissist flower.
0: (laughs) You think all these flowers just want to tell stories about themselves? Wait till you hear what this one has to say.
1: Oh, man. And of course, Narcissist it's tied to, like, Greek mythology. So anyway, again, not helpful. But she gets to the far edge of the garden, and the gate was fastened. And so she's, like, jiggling the rusty latch until it gave way, and the gate flew open. And so she ran barefoot out into the wide world. And that's very important to mention that she's like barefoot because they just want to emphasize like how vulnerable she is. So in the story, it says she looked back three times and saw no one was following her. So she finally, she realized that she couldn't go any farther and she just like sat down on a big rock. And when she sat down, she looked around and she realized that summer was almost over that she had been at that woman's house so long that it was already getting late into the fall. And so she kind of laments that she's like, I wasted so much time. I can't stay here any longer. And she got up and she kept walking. And that's the end of part three. It is interesting that they say, (laughs) they're like, only the black thorn bush still had berries on it. And they were so sour that they would make your lips pucker because it is that's kind of a like um, a last season fruit that. Mm -hmm. And so just to like illustrate through the story that like it's so late that like even these berries are like the last thing on. So
0: so part four, Gerda was walking so long that she had to stop and rest again while she's sitting down to rest her aching bare feet. A big crow comes hopping along the snow right where she's sitting. It's like, ah, snow. Late fall, coming into winter, probably. And so the crow stands there for a long time, and he's kind of watching her, cocking his head from side to side, from time to time. And finally, he speaks to her, and he says, Caw, caw, good cawdy caw. (laughs) (laughs) For that was the best that he could do. And he wanted to be kind to this little girl and ask her what she was doing all alone in the world. And so she told the crow, you know, her whole story. And she asked the crow if he had seen Kai. And the crow thinks about it for a second. And he's like, you know what? It's possible that I might have seen him. And so she she says, what? You've seen him? And she jumped up and goes over to the crow and she starts smothering him with kisses. And he's like, hey, 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 wait, come on, take it easy. It's like, it's possible that I've seen Kai. But if I have seen him, he's forgotten all about you because of that princess. And she's like, wait, what? He's living with a princess? And the girl's like, okay, yes, I'll tell you this story, but just pay attention because I kind of have a hard time with your language. If you understood crow speak, it would be a lot easier to explain. And Gerda's like, dang it. I never learned that language. She's like, but my grandmother knows it, which there we go. We found out that it's probably Gerda's grandmother from the beginning. But the crow's like, never mind. I'll tell you as best as I can, but I can't promise that it's going to be any good. And <laughs> he started telling her what he'd do about it, which already I love this crow. He's making a play for like my favorite character in the story so far. And so so the crow starts telling Gerda all about the princess of the land and how she decided to get married. And she had this brilliant idea. She's like, you know what, I'm going to put out this letter in the newspaper That says that any attractive young man was welcome to come to the castle and speak with me, but no uggos allowed.
1: Oh, my gosh. That's (laughs) just a running theme of the podcast. (laughs) That it's always it's always like only come here if you're beautiful or I'm only interested in the beautiful ones. Got to be a hottie. This is what matters the most.
0: But she wasn't completely shallow because her plan was, of all the attractive men that came, she was planning to marry the one who seemed the most at home in the castle, who like kind of felt comfortable there, and who also spoke the most eloquently. So she wanted someone that could speak well and also feel at home and comfortable in the castle where he would be living if he were to marry the princess. So young men who are excited to get rich and live in a castle started flocking there. But after all these men were going in and talking with the princess, for two whole days, she didn't choose anyone to marry. And so of these guys, none of them had a problem like speaking well when they were out on the street because they kind of knew that that's what she was looking for. But once they entered the gates of the castle and they started seeing the royal guards wearing silver and servants walking around wearing gold and they were like at the top of these brightly lit halls with beautifully decorated stairs and all this stuff. like. They were just struck dumb. They couldn't say anything. And so it said facing the princess who was seated on her throne, they couldn't think of a thing to say and just repeated the last word she had uttered, which she did not particularly care to hear again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Which I'm like is too bad for me because like you've noticed this before. One of the things like I do the most is like I will repeat the last thing that a person (laughs) said like the sentence back to them. Yeah. To show them that I've been listening to them. Yeah.
0: It's mirroring. It's a good social skill for conversation. But
1: But, at least (laughs) I will then add on. Yeah. I have no problem with that.
0: (laughs) The princess would hate you. (laughs) But at this point in the story, Gerda interrupts. She's like, wait, but what about Kai? What about my little Kai? Did he get there? Was he in that crowd? And the crow's like, whoa, 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 hold up. I'm telling a story here. I'll get there. On the third day, this little fellow marched right up to the castle. And his eyes sparkled just like yours do. And he had lovely long hair, but his clothes were in tatters. And so Gerda is like out of her mind, excited. She's like, that must have been Kai. It's like, well, and he was carrying this little bundle on his back. It's like, no, no, no. It mustn't have been a bundle. It was probably his sled. He had his sled when he left. And the crow's like, well, you know, you could be right. I wasn't actually paying that close of attention. But I do know from my tame sweetheart, which is one of the things I love about this crow. He's so in love with his fiance, as we come to find out. It's yes. like, I know from my tame sweetheart that when he marched through the palace gates, he saw all those guards dressed up. He climbed those stairs, saw the servants, and he wasn't even the least bit daunted. He just nodded at them and said, like, hey, man, must suck to stand outside on the steps all day. I'd rather go inside. And so his boots started creaking loudly as he walked in, but he wasn't afraid. And it was like, Gerda's like, heard the thing about the creaking boots. She's like, that had to have been Kai. He was wearing brand new boots. I heard them creak at Grandma's house. And the girl's like, oh, yeah.
1: uh, Shoes had to be broken in. Yeah, Um, so
0: they're, like, the leather's, like, creaking.
1: Yeah, like new shoes made a lot of like sound, and it was actually kind of like like a source of pride because people could be like, "You can hear that my shoes are new." Yeah, and that I like am well off enough that I have new shoes.
0: I kind of remember that even from like middle school when like kids were like squeaking through the hallways with a pair of new Jordans or whatever. Like,
1: and you'd be like, "Wow!" No, yeah, I no, I no, I, I'm like, no, I wouldn't know. I didn't. <laughs> I feel like that was uh, like. Uh, More of an American thing. I mean, we definitely had like Nike shoes and stuff like at like in Thailand, but Uh I feel like it was less of a big thing there.
0: Yeah. So the the crow's like, yeah, I mean, those those shoes were creaking and he just walked right up to the princess who was sitting on a pearl that was as big as a spinning wheel. It's like, okay, one, a big show of wealth, but a reference to a spinning wheel. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and it's it's shoved in there so weird because yeah. it's it's saying that the pearl she was sitting on a pearl yeah. as big as a spinning wheel. So he's just like throwing that like in there. But yeah, I'm like, what a ridiculous show of wealth. Yeah. Just like this this seat that's a pearl. That's yeah. not a good sit <laughs> upon. That's I like
0: don't. Yeah. It's it's quite the flex there. And, you know, so was having all these guards and servants standing around, and they're all just staring there, the ladies-in-waiting even, staring at this kid as he walked in. And Gerda's like, oh, my gosh, that must have been terrible, so intimidating. But it's like, but Kai still won the princess? And the crow at this point was like, hey, you know what? If I weren't a crow, I would have won her myself, even though I'm already betrothed. You know, they say he spoke as well as I speak when I'm using crow speech, that is. I mean, that's at least <laughs> what my sweetheart told me. That's
1: such a weird flex.
0: <laughs> it's like they're so in love. He's like talking about how much he loves his little sweetheart. And she's like, She tells me that I could have won the princess's heart if I weren't already betrothed to her and I were weren't a crow. It's like they're just like you know, complimenting each other back and yeah. forth. Yeah.
1: She's just like, oh my goodness, you're like so amazing. You're like the best crow in the yeah. world. And he's like, yeah,
0: <laughs> And she's the one that's like sitting around the palace, you know, giving him all this hot gossip and stuff. And so according to the sweetheart, this kid talking to the princess was dashing. He was charming. And he didn't come there to court the princess. You know, he wasn't trying to impress her, but instead he was there to listen to her And he wanted to hear what she had to say. And so she started liking him because he was listening to her and not trying to impress him. And he fulfilled the requirements that she had, you know, was well-spoken and he felt comfortable. He wasn't intimidated to be in the palace. And so Gerda's like, oh my gosh, that had to be Kai. He is so smart. He can do numbers in his head, even fractions. (laughs) Which, man, that's a big deal. If you want to get some women back in the 1840s, know your fractions. So she insists that the crow takes her to the castle. And so the crow's like, all right, I'm going to be honest with you. That's a lot easier said than done. I don't know how we're going to manage it. Let me go and talk to my sweetie. She knows how things work around the castle and she'll give us some advice. But I'm warning you, a girl like you that's not even wearing any shoes, they're not going to let, let you into the castle.
1: No shoes, no service.
0: <laughs> yeah. They take it seriously at that castle. So the crow leaves. Goes and talks to his sweetie, and then he comes back, and he's like, Hey, okay, so my sweetheart happens to know about this little back staircase that leads up to the bedroom, and she also knows where they keep the key. So after the lights go down the castle, the crow goes with the girl, and they start sneaking into the back door. And so Gerda's there, and she starts thinking about Kai. She's so excited to see him. She's thinking about his beautiful eyes and his hair, how happy everyone would be when he comes home. She's thinking about how sexy it was that he could do math in his head, even fractions. So hot. So while she's thinking about this, she was like kind of frightened, but she felt lighthearted because she was thinking she might be able to see Kai soon. And so when they got up closer, there was a little lamp on a cabinet that was burning and there stood the tame crow, which was this other crow's fiance, right in the middle of the room. And she was like looking all around. And then she saw Gerda, who, you know, politely curtsied to the crow. Birds are into that whole politeness kind of a thing. And they really like it when you show them some respect.
1: And so she's like, oh,
0: my gosh, Gerda, my fiance has spoken so highly of you. It's like your story. So moving. It's like, go take that lamp and we'll show you the most direct route up into the bedroom so that no one will see us. And then Gerda, at that moment, when she picks up the lamp, she gets kind of freaked out because she sees these like shadows rushing past her on the wall, like, you know, horses with flowing manes and all this stuff and she's like what the heck is that and the crow's like don't worry those are just dreams they come and they take the thoughts of the royal highness out hunting which is good because you can get a better look at them while they're asleep in their beds which i thought that was like a really weird but kind of cool image of like their dreams flying around like carrying their thoughts out into the world away from them when they're like asleep yeah yeah So they start climbing the stairs. They make their way through the castle quietly to the princess's room. And when they get in there, they see two beds. There was one that was white and one that was red. And she hoped that Kai would probably be in the red one. So she pulls back the curtains there and she looks in and she sees the back of a brown neck. She's like, oh, that has to be Kai. So she calls out his name. She holds up the lamp near his face. And just as she does, the dreams that she had earlier gallop back into the room and he wakes up. Turns his head and it's not Kai. Says the prince's neck may have looked like Kai's, but nothing else about him did. But still, he was young and handsome. So she's like, it's not Kai, but. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the princess then wakes up too to some strange girl in her room screaming someone's name. (laughs) That's not her prince. And she comes out of her bed and she's like, what happened? What happened? Which I'm like, you don't immediately call for the guards and have them try to like kill this intruder that's breaking into your bedroom in the middle of the night? Okay. But okay. little gir- <laughs> little Gerda had a great defense mechanism. She started crying immediately. And, you know, she's this kind of sad looking little girl that doesn't even have any shoes on. And so she tells them the whole story and she tells them what the crows had done for her. And both the prince and princess are like, oh, you poor dear. You know, they also go to the crows and they praise the crows for what they've done. Like, oh, you're such good crows. Thank you for trying to take care of this little girl. You know, we're not mad. You shouldn't have done what you did, sneaking people up into our bedroom. But instead of killing you like we probably should, this time we're (laughs) going to give you a reward. So the princess is like, okay, we'll give you a choice. We can go free, or if you'd rather, you can both have lifetime appointments as court crows, which is apparently a thing. And you can have the rights to the scraps on the kitchen floor. So both crows, like, again, they'd like to show their respect. They bow deeply to the princess and ask for permission to have these permanent positions. So it says, too, they were thinking about the future and how important it was to have something for their golden years, as they called them. It's like, these crows were thinking ahead to retirement. I mean, smart birds. Indeed. So the prince climbed out of his bed, let Gerda sleep in it, and she went to sleep thinking about how nice people and animals can be. And she fell asleep and slept peacefully that night. And the dreams came flying back in, and they looked just like God's angels. And they were pulling a sled that Kai was riding on, And he kind of nodded in her direction, but then she woke up and realized it was just a dream. And so the prince and the princess invited Gerda to stay there at the castle. She could live in luxury, you know, where they have giant seats as spinning wheels made of pearl. But instead, she just asked for a little carriage, a horse, and a pair of boots so that she could go back and look for Kai.
1: Very important to have the boots.
0: Yeah, she's like... I threw my shoes in a river and I'm thinking in hindsight, that was a mistake. It's been a real pain not to have shoes. So they gave her a pair of shoes and a fur muff for her ears, earmuffs, or is a muff no, another no, no. type of thing? Like a coat? So
1: no, no, no. A muff is, it goes around your arms. The, you've seen it before. Anytime. Where like, yeah. Where it's that like kind of loop of fur that you is like for your, your two in. hands and you put your hands and you can hold them in front of you. That's, that's the muff they're talking about.
0: Gotcha. So they gave Gerda what she asked for, a pair of boots and also this fur muff. And just as she's about to leave, a coach covered in pure gold came up to the door. And the crow from the forest, who was now married to his tame little sweetie,
2: Aww. hopped into
0: the, the golden carriage with her. And, you know, the prince and princess see her off in person. The crow sits right down next to Gerda and... <laughs> It says that, uh, so the crow sat next to Gerda and it says that he was facing the same way as Gerda because it would have made him sick to have been facing backwards in the carriage. So that's why he had to sit right next to Gerda.
1: Yeah. Cause and, he gets motion sickness.
0: Yeah. And his sweetie was there at the gate flapping her wings and she couldn't come in the carriage because she's been suffering from these like constant headaches from eating too much food in her new position. <laughs> Which I was like, those are some interesting details to include. <laughs>
1: That's like her table. She was like, I ate too many of those free table scraps that we were offered. Now I have a headache. And the other crow is like, I get motion sick when I'm inside of the carriage.
0: So they (laughs) take off. And Gerda starts crying because the prince and princess were so nice to her. And the crow is crying because he's like kind of away from his sweetie and all that. And he knows that he's not going to be able to go the whole way with Gerda. So after the first few miles... The crow was like, I can't go any further. So he flies out. And that was like the hardest separation for Gerda to deal with. And so he flies up into a tree, flapping his wings as the carriage, which was sparkling like bright sunshine, disappeared into the wilderness. Part five. So
1: the carriage rode through the dark forest and Gerda's carriage was like a torch in the dark forest because the gold was shining so brightly. And there were robbers in this forest who couldn't help but see the carriage because it was so bright, flashing <laughs> through the trees like it was just begging them to steal it.
0: Maybe giving her a solid gold carriage was a mistake?
1: Mm-hmm. It's like, it was very generous, yeah. but also it would have been more helpful if they just had like a wooden one.
0: <laughs> Not very prudent, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. So the band of robbers sped forward shouting, it's gold, it's gold.
0: <laughs> and There's they, gold in that carriage.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they're about to murder some people. Um, so I was going to totally take it different. Um, but I like you being like, there's gold. And I'm, not, I'm like, <laughs> now that we're really enjoying them, I'm about to be like, and then they murdered everybody. <laughs> so the robbers sped forward and they shouted out, it's gold. It's gold. And they seized the horses and killed the driver, the postillions, and the footmen. And then oh. they dragged Gerda from the carriage thinking that she was like a princess. Yeah. So, really good for like holding hostage
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so out steps the old robber hag which i'm like (laughs) yes (laughs) never have i identified so strongly with a character (laughs) so she steps forward stroking her long bristly beard and her brow her eyebrows hung down over her eyes i'm like yes this is my this is my lady. This is my gal. So she steps forward and she's looking at Gerda and she says, How plump and tender you look. It looks like you've been fattened up on pecans. Which now I'm gonna start saying that to everybody. Like, you've been fattened up on pecans. You'll be as tasty as a fat little lamb. What a dainty dish you will make. And so she pulls out a knife, and as the knife is glinting in the sun, the old hag suddenly screams out, ouch! Because she is being bitten on the ear by her daughter who was riding (laughs) on her
0: back. Okay, and now enters my actual favorite character of the entire story.
1: They... They describe her as delightfully wild and <laughs> reckless.
0: And that's my kind of girl.
1: That She makes her like introduction into the story by like <laughs> biting her bearded mother on the ear.
0: Going <laughs> Mike Tyson on her.
1: <laughs> you nasty little brat, her mother said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I imagine in kind of like an endearing like voice.
1: Oh, okay. But she's just she's just like, like, you you nasty nasty little little brat, brat." (laughs) (laughs) you adorable scam. (laughs) (laughs) And the robber girl says, Mom, leave her alone. I want her to play with me. She was like, I don't have anybody in this band of robbers my age to play with. I don't have anybody. It's not fair. (laughs) I want her but the robber girl, she wants Gerda as like a plaything. Like I do want to point that out. That it's so interesting because she sees Gerda as like a toy, yeah, or like an animal pet. And we're about to see how she treats animal pets.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so the girl says she'll give me that beautiful muff and that beautiful dress she's wearing, and then she's going to sleep next to me. And then, for no reason whatsoever, she bit her mother again. (laughs) And then she hopped down, and all the band of robbers start laughing, and they're like, look how cute she is with her little brat, meaning the mom with her little brat, because she's constantly being, I guess, munched on by her daughter. (laughs) I'm going to ride in the carriage, the robber girl said. (laughs) So the girl, like, grabs onto Gerda, jumps into the carriage, and they, like, ride off on the carriage into, like, the forest. So the little robber girl, she's not any bigger than Gerda, but she's a lot stronger, and she's got broad shoulders. People say that Hans Christian Andersen, he's probably leaning on some, like, bad stereotypes, of uh, like either the Roma people or even uh, Sammy that lived in like the, the area in Finland and stuff. But there were like, oh, these like nomadic band of robbers. So he's kind of leaning on some like pretty bad stereotypes. But there's this little girl. So it says her eyes were coal black and they looked a little sad, probably from growing up as like... <laughs> The only child in this band of robbers. So she is the robber girl is going to say some things that will have some slight sexual undertones and are also just plain like creepy. But do know that she just grew up kind of wild. (laughs) So she put her arm around Gerda as they're like riding through the forest. And she said, I won't let them chop you up into pieces as long as we stay good friends. (laughs) And then she said, are you a princess? And Gerda's like, no, I'm not a princess. So she started to tell the robber girl everything that had happened to her and how fond she was of Kai. So then the robber girl gave her like this like kind of super like solemn look and said, even if I do get angry with you, I won't let them chop you to pieces because I'd rather do it myself. (laughs) And it says, then she dried Gerda's tears. (laughs) And then this is a part where I'm like, this is a bit of wordplay that's supposed to be slightly sexual, it says. And she put her hands inside the beautiful muff, which was soft and warm. So yeah, muff has some sexual connotations. I don't know if people are like aware of that. And so if you're not, that's okay. I'm pointing it out to you right now.
0: And you probably wish that she didn't.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you probably wish that she didn't. So when the carriage came to a stop, they were outside. It's called the robber's castle, which is basically like an old rundown ruin of like a castle. So we're talking about like, how I visualize it is just like this giant castle that's fallen into disrepair. And this like group of people have just kind of turned it into a cave almost of just like their stuff scattered everywhere. And there are animals where there's normally like a dining hall and things are running loose. It said that there was a crack that was running from top to bottom in the castle and that ravens and crows were flying in and out of like the holes in the walls. And there were also these like giant bulldogs that were there that were protecting like the castle. But it said the dogs did not bark for that was forbidden.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well-trained dogs.
1: So there was a big fire that was burning in kind of the middle of like the the biggest hall, and it said that like the smoke had left soot stains on like the ceiling, because they were kind of using the castle in an unconventional way. It <laughs> said so there was a large cauldron of soup that was bubbling, and I'm like, oh, cauldron! It's another one for our like little fairy tale Easter bingo. egg hunt. <laughs> So there was soup that was boiling in the cauldron and rabbits and hares that were being roasted on a spit. And the robber girl says, tonight you'll sleep here with me and with all my little animals. And they sat down and they ate and they drank together. And then she took... Gerda to a corner of the room that was covered with straw and blankets. And it said above their heads, there were like hundreds of doves that were roosting, which I'm like, don't sleep under <laughs> rafters that birds are roosting on. It's a health hazard. You will get pooped on for sure. So the little girl kind of pointed up to all of the little animals And she said, they are all mine. And she grabbed hold of one of the nearest ones. And she started shaking it in Gerda's face and was like, kiss it, kiss it. I want you to kiss it. (laughs) And the bird was like flapping around like crazy. And it was freaking out Gerda, obviously, because (laughs) she's being really forceful about like demanding that she kisses this like animal, puts her mouth on this like animal. So, yeah, she is very aggressive <laughs> of a child. Other people have pointed out that the robber girl could be compared to like Artemis in like mythologies just that she's like this lady of wild things, like a virgin goddess, huntress. Mm. And so they're like that's kind of like her feel, but she is very she's compassionate, but she's also seems very like threatening. And yeah. Yeah, so it's it's funny cuz while she's like trying to like have an intimate relationship with like Gerda, she's also very like aggressive.
0: Yeah. She's like clueless about it too. I mean, it's obviously she's not been socialized around like other children, you know. Yes. yes. So it's just so funny that exactly that like contrast is funny because she's going about trying to get what she wants in like the least likely way to get her what she wants. Like, if you want to be friends with someone, don't tell them that You don't want your family and friends to cut them to pieces because you want to do it yourself.
1: Yeah, that's like a friendship pro (laughs) tip right there. Like, that was a really touching story you told me. Even if I get angry with you, I won't let my family chop you up because I'll do it myself.
0: (laughs) And she's like, oh, yeah, that's better than what I said before.
1: Yeah. Like, like we're making
0: progress in our friendship. I want you to know this.
1: Like now that you've shared these intimate details with me, I feel even closer to you than I did before. And I'm going to articulate that by threatening you in a different way. I
0: love it. She's my favorite.
1: (laughs) So she's like flapping this bird in Gerda's face and Gerda's like freaking out. So she continues to show Gerda around her like random creatures menagerie. And she was like, oh, yeah, inside of these holes in the wall, I actually keep, like, other creatures. And so in there's some, like, slots in the wall, it sounds like, where she's got, like, a block of wood blocking them in. And if she, like, moves the (laughs) latch, she can, like, pull out these other animals that she has, like, in these little. And she's like, oh, yeah, I have to keep them locked up because if I leave it open even for a minute, they'll run away from me. It's like, no kidding. Um, <laughs> so then she's like, oh, and this over here is dear old Ba. And dear old Ba is a reindeer. And he had a shiny copper ring tied around his neck. And she said, we have to keep an eye on him because he tries to run away from us, too. But every night I tickle his neck with my knife blade. He's so terrified of it. <laughs> and the robber girl proceeded to pull a long knife out of a crack that was in the wall because I guess she's got weapons stashed all over the place (laughs) in this castle makes full sense so she pulls this long knife out and she like slides it across like the reindeer's throat and the little Deer tries to, like, pull away from her or get away, and the robber girl just, like, laughs, and then she, like, grabs Gerda. She's still holding the knife. She grabs Gerda and then drags Gerda to bed. And Gerda was like, are you going to keep that knife while you're sleeping? And the robber girl was like, I always sleep with this knife. (laughs) She's Why going would? through that
0: same stage where she can't get rid of some of her older toys, you know, it's like <laughs> her security blanket. She's like, I know I'm a little too old for it, but I just can't sleep without my knife by my side.
1: Yeah. She's like, you never know what might happen. The only time I've ever slept with like a knife under my bed was like right after I got robbed uh, mm. that one time in college yeah. that I was like, oh, I just have to carry a like a knife around with me where I go places. So that's a sign of trauma. So she was like, oh, yeah, I always have this knife with me when I go to bed. You never know what could happen. But tell me that story again about you and Kai and your adventure as they go to bed. So it's a nice little bedtime story for this girl. So Gerda told the story again about her and Kai and her adventures so far. And she's hearing the little wood doves like above kind of cooing and kind of like talking to each other almost. Mm -hmm. So the little robber girl, she has her arm around Gerda's neck with one arm. And then she's holding the knife in her other hand. And she like falls asleep holding Gerda with those two like hands and starts snoring really loudly like in Gerda's face. And it said Gerda did not dare close her eyes, which I like, uh, yeah. Me either. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. So the other robbers, meanwhile, were all over by the fire. And they're like singing and drinking. And apparently the old robber hag was turning somersaults, which I'm like, good for you, ma'am. Yeah. But it was absolutely terrifying to this little girl because she's just like watching these people get like more and more like drunk and rowdy and crazy. And so she's lying there being held by a girl who has a knife. And the little doves above her, she hears them go, Coo-coo, we've seen little Kai. A white hen was pulling his sleigh, and he was seated in the Snow Queen's sleigh as it raced over the tops of the trees where we built our nest. The Snow Queen's icy breath killed all the baby pigeons, except for the two of us who managed to survive. (laughs) Coo-coo. And Gerda was like, What are you two talking about up there? Where was the snow queen going? And they kind of like looked down at her and they're like, oh, she's probably bound for Lapland. And Lapland is the northern regions of Scandinavia, Finland, and even parts of Russia that was inhabited by the Sami people. They're the people who are like indigenous to that area. So they're like, she's probably bound for Lapland. There's always snow and ice there. You should ask the reindeer tied up over there. And then the reindeer, Ba, he was like, oh, yeah, there's lots of snow and ice there. It's like really, really beautiful. You can like just prance around all day and it's just like glittery and wonderful. And the Snow Queen has her summer tent set up there because like her permanent home is closer to the North Pole. But yeah, usually she spends like her time in Lapland because it's so wonderful there. Which <laughs> he's like, he's just like, man, it's so like desolate and like cold. It's wonderful. <laughs> which it's like, yeah, it's a reindeer telling the story. But Gerda was just like, oh, Kai, poor Kai. And then the little robber girl was like, you need to quiet down or I'm going to poke you in the stomach with my knife. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, kind of sexual undertones there. That it's not just me saying that. I like other like it's a thing that gets pointed out a lot that there because in this journey, this is kind of like another like kind of growing up point for Gerda where she kind of it's like the first time she's ever really been like, for lack of a better word, manhandled. Yeah even though she's being robber girl handled. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of just this abrupt kind of rough awakening that like, oh, the world isn't nice or safe or kind. It's kind of like a mix of good and bad, rough and stuff. Because yeah. the like, robber girl she, is like not she had just, all bad.
0: She had just come from a place where when people found her breaking into their room in the middle of the night, they like treated her kindly and sent her off in a golden carriage. And then another group of strangers she comes across, murders everyone, all the servants that those people had sent with her, and then just, like, has no respect for her personal space and boundaries. You know, so it's like she's been going through some extremes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So in the morning, Gerda went to the robber girl and told her what she had heard the wood doves and the reindeer and stuff talking about. And the robber girl listened and she was like, okay, okay, okay. And she turned to the reindeer and she was like, do you know where Lapland is? And the reindeer was like, of course I know where it is. I was
3: born (laughs) there.
1: That's where my people are from. It's amazing. I used to play in the fields of snow when I was young and it was so fun. (laughs) It's like this guy just like, like, oh yeah, I know all about Lapland. So the robber girl looks at Gerda and she's like, okay, so you can see that like all the men have gone out to like rob stuff, but my mom is still here and she'll be here all day and you can't just leave. So my mom, she's gonna take a swig from that big bottle over there.
0: (laughs) It's alcohol. She's going to get real sleepy. She's going to get
1: real sleepy. And when she lays down to take a nap, that's when you will need to leave, okay? And Gerda was like, okay, because Gerda, again, very innocent to the ways of the world. This was all kind of a lot for her. So Robber Girl just hops out of bed. She goes over to her mom and tugs on her beard and says, good morning, my own dear sweet goat. (laughs) <laughs> Which I just am like, oh my gosh, I just relate so strongly with this like robber hag woman. I'm like not even, Jeff knows what I'm talking about. So I have polycystic ovarian syndrome and so I do grow uh, like facial hair. And so anytime I like run across like somebody who they're like, this woman had a mustache. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> they're
3: like, this woman had a
1: beard. I'm like, yeah, let's not, let's not be ragging on people with beards. Uh, like like, we don't gotta be mean so anyway i just love that this old lady they're just like so she's pulling on her beard especially because he mentioned like it slipped into this story yeah like not even like it's a thing like it's just noted as like a like oh so she tugged on her mom's beard yeah or earlier when it was like and her like the old hag just came up like scratching her beard and you're like wait what it's like no it's fine the lady's a little beardy It's okay. Yeah. Everybody be cool. So anyway, what's also funny about her calling her mom a goat is just, like, how negatively goats are seen in, like, Christian, like, kind of theology. Because they're kind of related yeah. more with, like, witches and, like, the devil. And their so cloven hooves. Yeah. So it's kind of funny that they're, like, mentioning it there. So... She grabs her mom's beard is like, good morning, my dear, sweet little goat. And so her mom grabs onto her nose and said until it turned red and blue. But it was all done out of affection. Okay. so so the do they just show their love that way being rough, which again, it makes you understand why the robber girl was like so rough with Gerda because she was like, this is how we show love by kind of being really rough. So they're playing around with each other, and the robber girl kind of hands her mom the bottle. And it says, like, the mom took it and took a swig from the bottle and then settled down for a nap. (laughs) As you do. As you do. So the robber girl, she went over to the reindeer, and she said, and I quote, I'm itching to tickle you many more times with my sharp blade because it's so much fun. But Never mind, I'm going to untie your rope and take you outdoors so that you can go back to Lapland, but be quick and take this little girl to the Snow Queen's Palace where she'll be able to find her playmate. I'm sure you heard her entire story for she was talking rather loudly, and you were probably eavesdropping as you always do. <laughs> Which I'm like, apparently, this reindeer has kind of like a history of just like being a busybody. <laughs> There's, like, a backstory there that I'm interested in. Like, like how is, what is this? She's like, you were always in everybody's business. So the reindeer was, like, super, super excited, and the little robber girl lifted Gerda up onto its back and kind of, like, nestled her in. And she said, I'm going to give you your fur boots back because it's going to be cold, but I'm going to hold on to your muff because it's too pretty to part with. (laughs) But I will give you my mother's big mittens. They'll reach all the way up to your elbows. And so she, like, put on these gloves. And she said, now your hands look just like my hideous mother's paws. (laughs) I'm like, that's so cute.
0: She's the best.
1: (laughs) So little robber girl gave her two loaves of bread and some ham so that she wouldn't get hungry on her trip. And she was like, go as fast as you can, reindeer, and take good care of her. And Gerda waved goodbye to the little robber girl, and the reindeer bounded off. And Gerda could hear the wolves howling and the ravens shrieking, which, again, we heard those two things when Kai was getting close. And it says that the sky seemed to say, Kerchoo, Kerchoo, as if it were sneezing red streaks of light. Those are my old northern lights, is what the reindeer said. I think it's really interesting. That's not the most beautiful way I've ever heard the Northern Lights described,
2: <laughs>
1: but okay. But they just looked at the Northern Lights as they galloped up towards Lapland. End of story five. So now you need to take your cassette out and flip it over so you can hear the second <laughs> half. of
0: <laughs> More like the last
1: Yes, l- yeah, we're, we're actually really very close.
0: Yeah, so. Three,
1: three hours in, but we're
0: approaching the climax here part six so they're bounding along for a while and they stop in front of a small house and this house was what one would describe as quote a wretched hovel end quote and no (laughs) one was at home except for an old lap woman who was frying fish over this whale oil lamp and so the reindeer comes up and he tells this lap woman gerda's entire story but he actually tells his own story first because he thought that his story was kind of more important than Gerda's. He doesn't <laughs> realize that he's a secondary character in this story. Unfortunately for Katrina, it doesn't actually say what his story is. Because I know you were just talking about how you wanted to hear more about it. But
1: I do. I'm like, what is his backstory?
0: But Gerda was so frozen to the bone that she couldn't even open her mouth. So she's like happy to let the reindeer prattle on and on and on. She's just trying to warm up and the lap woman is like oh you poor creature and you still have such a long way to go it's like it's another hundred miles at least to finmark where the snow queen is taking her country vacation which finmark is also apparently like a region in like the northern part of norway that's like right at the northernmost part of norway that you can get so it's like some pretty cold country up there so the lap woman can do she says like every night the snow queen is launching off her blue fireworks. It's like, okay, I don't have any paper, but I'm gonna write a few words down on this old dried codfish, and you go give it to the Finn woman up there, and she knows way more about all this stuff than I do. So I'll just write down a few words on this fish, like you do.
1: Which I wanna I do wanna say that it it is noted inside of the annotated hands Christian Anderson, actually, that because I was like, that's weird, but apparently. That is something that they could do with the fish because when you dried it out, it was very like thin, like paper. Uh, and so it could be used as a writing tablet.
0: Yeah. I didn't think it was like a weird thing that was made up, but I still did think it was I a weird d- thing. I definitely that. thought
1: it was made up. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, that's really weird. And apparently, no, that's like not even like an odd part of, part of the story.
0: No, they're like, no, that's, yeah, that that tracks. That's what they did back in those days. Still a weird thing to do to write a message on a fish, but I could understand. It's, you know, it's not weird, different. It's a choice. So after Gerda had warmed up, had a little something to eat, a little something to drink, the lap woman, as she said, wrote a few words down on the fish, gave it to Gerda, and popped her right back up on the reindeer and sent her on their way. So... Bah, the reindeer with Gert on his back, twW 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 twW, tromps off so you could hear the whoosh, whoosh, and the lovely blue northern lights were flashing overhead, which I thought is funny that they said they were red before and now they're blue. I don't know if that's a thing, but. Maybe
1: we'll get some green ones next. Because, yeah. I mean, they are, like, multicolored.
0: Yeah. So- I've never seen pictures of them red before, but I don't know anything. I've never seen them. Yeah, that's on that's eyes. on my
1: bucket list. I want to see the Northern Lights, but my problem is I don't want to be cold. Yeah. So
0: <laughs> it's kind of like two conditions that
1: it's just like I I have to make a choice.
0: <clears throat> so at last they reached Finnmark and knocked on the chimney of the Finn woman because she didn't actually have a door. They get inside, and it is so hot inside that the Finn woman is walking around in there with practically no clothes on, and she's, like, kind of dirty, kind of grimy, like, sweating. That's how hot it is. The fairy
1: teller's after hours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's how hot it is. But it's pretty impressive because, I mean, like we're saying, this is, like, in the middle of winter, super far up north so that she could get her, you know, house, which, you know, the most prominent thing to knock on was the chimney. I guess that makes sense that they're like heating it up in there with some wood or fire of some kind.
1: Yeah. Cause I imagine they could get it pretty hot in there because they're, if they're down low, they're yeah. not being affected by the elements, just what's going on inside the little house. Yeah.
0: So immediately the Finn woman's like, okay, we're going to start unbuttoning Gerda's like, coat and her mittens and taking off because otherwise she's just going to like wilt in the heat. And it says she even goes and she puts a big piece of ice on the reindeer's head to keep him cold as reindeers like to be. Yes. And so she takes the codfish from Gerda, looks at it, reads the message a few times until she's memorized it. And then she throws it into her kettle of soup because it was still a perfectly good fish. We can still eat it just because it was used to write a message. Doesn't mean we can't eat it. And it said specifically, She never liked to waste anything. So (laughs) why let a good message fist go to waste?
1: Well, and she probably can't waste anything because she's like up so far north with like (laughs) such few resources.
0: So again, sitting around, the reindeer tells his story first. Again, not realizing he's a secondary character. And then he says what happened to little Gerda. And the Finn woman just stares at them and blinks her wise eyes. She didn't say a word. And the ranger's like, oh, you are so wise. Like, I know that, and I quote from the story directly here now, I know that you can tie all the winds of the world together with a bit of thread. When a skipper unties just one of the knots, he has a good wind. When he unties the second, he'll get a stiff wind. And if he unties the third and fourth knots, there's a storm so fierce that it topples the trees. Can you give this little girl a drink? One that will give her the strength of 12 men and help her overpower the snow queen? Which I just thought it was cool, the referencings to the, like, thread, some sewing stuff, some, you know, fairy tale staples again for our fairy tale bingo players out there.
1: So these are kind of like the hags in a crag.
0: And oh, now he's yeah. talking about
1: the four winds.
0: Oh my gosh, I didn't even of think of that. the world being
1: tied together. Yeah. And and then it is the knots, the uh, knots are magic. Yeah. And so, like... You were spot on when you were like, like, oh, the knots thread magic and like, yep, 100% it's magic.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. And I didn't think about that too. Like the different winds, like, and they grow in power too. The first one gives you a good wind. The second one, it's like really strong. And then they start getting dangerous and stronger the more you go on. Just like in East of the Sun, West of the Moon, where they had to go from each wind to the next in order to find the strongest one that could carry them super far up north to the kingdom that she needed to get to. That's crazy. So, the last thing the reindeer asks is like, you know, we know that you've got this strong magical power with the threads. Like, can not you give this girl a drink or something that's gonna give her the strength of 12 men? And the Finn woman's just like, the strength of 12 men? A lot of good that would do. Burn.
1: I love that she, like, doesn't answer the question. She's just, like, (laughs) stupid. (laughs) She She, just walks away.
0: Yeah. And so she walks over there to some shelves, and she takes down this big rolled-up hide and spreads it out. And there's this, like, kind of strange letters and writing written all over it. And she starts looking on them all over as, you know, the sweat starts to roll down her face. And the reindeer just keeps pleading. He's like, please, please, can't you help her? And, you know, he starts getting tears in his eyes. And Gerda's got tears in her eyes. And finally the old woman blinks. She pulls the reindeer aside to a corner and she's like, you know, under the pretense of putting like fresh ice on his head. And she's like, hey, listen, it's true. Little Kai is with the Snow Queen and he finds everything there. Great. He loves it. He thinks it is the best place on Earth, but it's only because he's got this glass splinter in his heart and a speck of glass in his eye. And so until we get rid of that stuff, he's never going to be human again. And the Snow Queen is going to have him completely in her power. And the reindeer's like still caught up in this whole drink thing. He's like, so can't you give Gerda something to drink that'll make her more powerful than the Snow Queen? And the Finn woman's like, look, I can't give her more power than she already has. Don't you see how much power she's got? Have you noticed how man and beast alike have gone out of their way to help her? It's like, look, she's come out into this wide world with no shoes on her feet. It's like, but we can't tell her about this power because her strength lies in her heart. She is a sweet, innocent child. So if she can't reach the Snow Queen on her own and get rid of those pieces of glass from Kai, then there's nothing that we can do. So all you can do is take her into the Snow Queen's domain and let her do her thing. So without putting back on her boots or her mittens, the Woman lifts Gerda back up onto the reindeer and sends him off as fast as she can because that's kind of important that she not have those things for her true power to come out. Unbeknownst to Gerda, who thinks she's just gonna freeze. So they get into the Snow Queen's domain, and the reindeer puts her down and kisses her on the lips. And with these tears running down his cheeks, he says his goodbyes and runs off as fast as he can. So there's Gerda standing there all alone, no shoes, no mittens, just out in the middle of this icy, cold wilderness. And so Gerda runs as fast as she can. And as she's running, this like, says an entire regiment of snowflakes come swirling towards her. And we know what's going on here. There are these magical snowflakes that they start skimming along the ground and the closer they come, the bigger they grow. And they come alive and they form like the queen's advanced guards. They turn into these like snow soldiers taking these like strange and terrifying shapes it says, like, they look like overgrown hedgehogs. There's some that look like these clusters of snakes with their heads rearing in all directions. There's fat little cubs with their hair standing on end. And all of them, this, like, dazzling, sparkling white color because they were these snowflakes that had come to life. So Gerda, seeing these, like, fearsome enemies coming at her, just being a little girl without any shoes or mittens, does the only thing that she thinks she can do. And she says her prayers. And as she's saying her prayers, it's so cold she can see the breath coming out of her mouth and getting denser and just like floating down like a column of smoke in front of her. And as these prayers are coming out of her lips, her breath starts to take the shape of these little angels that start to grow as they touch the ground. And all of them had helmets on their heads, and they're carrying spears, and they have shields in their hands, and they start coming one after another. And by the time that Gerda finished praying, she was surrounded by this entire legion of angels. And when the angels thrust their spears toward these monstrous snowflakes, these snowflake creatures shattered into hundreds of pieces all around, and Gerda kept on walking, feeling At this point, pretty safe now that she's got this entire (laughs) army of (laughs) breath angels taking out all the snow demons. And she's going along and the angels are even rubbing her hands and feet so they wouldn't feel the cold. And they march into the Snow Queen's castle. But now we must return to Kai and see how he's doing. He certainly wasn't thinking about little Gerda and he never imagined that she might be waiting just outside the castle. Part seven.
1: The seventh and Final story. So the castle walls were made of snowdrifts and the windows and doors of biting winds, which I'm like, that seems more metaphorical than actually <laughs> physical. Uh, it said there were more than a hundred rooms. All shaped by the drifting snow, and the largest stretches were several miles, which I'm like, that just sounds like he's standing out in the middle of nowhere. Because it also says that the ceiling was being lit up by the northern lights, which I'm like, that sounds like the sky. (laughs) So it said there was no joy there except the polar bears that could dance to the music supplied by the wind. I'm like, that's so beautiful. So. The Snow Queen's rooms were immense, empty, and frozen expanses, which is interesting because it actually reminds me of the castles in East of the Sun and West of the Moon and the Cupid and Psyche story is that they had these giant castles that were essentially, like, really empty and sterile. So Mm -hmm. I, like, think that's really interesting. So inside this, like, giant expanse of space... In the center of the Snow Queen's domain, the exact center was a lake, which the Snow Queen called the Mirror of Reason, obviously, because (laughs) the Age of Reason is bad, apparently. So she said it was one of a kind and the best thing in the entire world. Kai at this point was standing on the edge of the lake and he had turned blue from the cold. It says, in fact, he had almost turned black, like um, frostbite. But it said he didn't notice at all because the Snow Queen had kissed away his icy shivers. And so by now, his heart was almost entirely a lump of ice. And he was running all around everywhere, moving these pieces of ice trying to configure them in different ways just rearranging them over and over again like they were this like big puzzle that he had to try to solve it says it was an ice puzzle of the mind <laughs> 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 quote to him the design seemed remarkable and deeply important but that was only because of the speck of glass in his eye so he was like running around trying to arrange these pieces because the snow queen had told him that if he was able to find the way to arrange these like chunks of ice into the word eternity then she would give him back his freedom and give him the whole world and a pair of new skates, <laughs> which I
0: think just is a little cherry on top,
1: which I think is funny because it's like the new skates are more because like, eh, you're a kid. Um, and the whole world is just like this, like grandiose idea. So basically it's, like a symbol of like he's like a scientist or like a philosopher trying to to sort out the the keys and mysteries of the universe and eternity and and he can't he it's an ice puzzle of your mind <laughs> <laughs> and that like trying to solve all these eternal problems or like existential questions through science is like a fool's errand and yeah. all those questions and stuff the real meaning can only be found through like religion is like the point that he's like getting at. So the queen is just like seeing him sitting on the side of the lake, staring at all these pieces, almost completely frozen. And she's like, well, I'm off to warmer countries. I need to go check on my black cauldrons, which I'm like, wow, (laughs) black cauldrons. There we go. Um, But she was referring to volcanoes. It said specifically Mount Etna and Vesuvius. Which is funny because Hans Christian Andersen had just gone on a trip to see those volcanoes. But she's like, I need to give those a good coat of whitewash. You know, it's good for the lemons and the grapes down there. <laughs> she, You know, she's just being helpful. And so away she flew, leaving Kai all alone in this, like, frozen ice palace next to the Mirror of Reason. <laughs> So he is sitting quietly and stiffly and he looks like he's already like frozen to death. And just then Gerda enters the castle because a portal has been made by the piercing winds. And so she like comes through this portal and says as soon as she spoke her evening prayer, the winds died down and she walked inside and she saw Kai and she recognized him immediately and she threw her arms around him and held him and just started um, like crying out. I found you at last, but he just sat mm. there frozen, stiff and cold, almost entirely turned to ice. And so Gerda started to cry these hot tears And as they fell onto Kai's chest, they went straight to his heart and melted the lump of ice and dissolved the little shard from the mirror. Remember when I said with the roses that like, Oh, the tears, they made the roses pop out of the ground. Her tears now made his heart thaw. So Kai looked at Gerda and he still didn't know who she was. And so she started to sing him the hymn Down in the valley where roses grow wild, there we can speak with our dear Christ child. And Kai just like burst into tears. And he cried so hard at being able to remember Christ (laughs) that the speck of glass washed right out of his eye. It's like, thanks to the song about Jesus. He remembered that Christ was more powerful than science, and he was saved from the devil's shards. So he suddenly he looks over and he recognizes Gerda, and he's like, "Gerda, where have you been this whole time? Where have I been?" And he looks around and he's like, "It's so cold and empty here." And she just like laughs, seeing him come back to himself. And so it said that. As she started laughing and tears of joy started come down her face, the little ice chunks that Kai had been playing with, they started dancing for joy too. And they danced and danced until they collapsed on the ground, forming the word eternity. Just like the snow queen had told Kai he would have to do in order to get back his freedom, the whole world and a pair of new skates. (laughs) So. Him trying to reason it out didn't work. So Gerda kissed Kai on his cheeks and the color started coming back to them. So she kissed his eyes and they began to shine again. And she kissed his hands and his feet and he felt strong and healthy. He now had the word eternity spelled out in the Snow Queen's castle. He knew that she had no more power over him. And so they just strolled out hand in hand out of the enormous castle and they talked about their grandmother and the roses on the roof and everywhere they walked the winds quieted down and the sun broke through and when they got back to where gerda had left the reindeer he was there joined by another lady reindeer whose udders were full of warm milk for children So, and the lady deer, you know, kissed them, licked them, and fed them. And then they got carried down to the fin woman first, where they warmed up in her cozy cottage. And then they went to the lap woman, who sewed them new clothes and put them on her sled. And the reindeer took Kai and Gerda all the way to the border of the country until they saw some green buds forming. They said goodbye to the reindeer, and then a young girl wearing a bright red cap on her head and holding two pistols, pew pew pew, pew pew, <laughs> came riding out of the forest on a magnificent horse that Gerda recognized as the horse that had drawn the golden carriage because this girl was in fact the little robber girl. Pew 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 yes.
2: pew. Yes.
1: So she turned in her knives for pistols. And she had said that she had grown tired of living in the home with her mother and decided to strike out on her own. And so she recognized Gerda. So the robber girl turns to Kai and she's like, you're a fine fellow running off like that. I wonder if you really deserve having someone go to the ends of the earth for your sake.
2: (laughs) I'm like, yeah, girl.
1: She's like, what is the point of you?
0: You walking MacGuffin, you. (laughs)
1: So Gerda patted the robber girl's cheeks and asked her if she had any news of the prince and the princess. And I don't know why the robber girl would have news of them, but the robber girl did. And she's like, oh, yeah, they're traveling off in foreign lands. And Gerda asked and the crows and the robber girl said, oh, the crow's dead. Oh, His tame sweetheart is now a widow, and she has wrapped a bit of black woolen yarn around her leg. She complains constantly, and it's really all a nuisance. Oh, my goodness. Which I am like, I'm sure that Hans Christian Andersen had a reason for killing that crow. People think that it's because they're kind of showing you, like, that when you are like the prince and the princess and you're... Young love starting off, whatever, like you have kind of this like grand adventure to look forward to. And then in your like older years, Mm -hmm. like people will die and you will have to just like mourn their loss and grieve the rest of your days, which I'm like, okay, I guess that's a choice.
0: Yeah. But uh, Hans, can't we just have a happy ending here, please?
1: Yeah, just for a second. So then the robber girl says, and I quote, abracadabra, hocus pocus, (laughs) bippity-boppity-boo. And she grabbed them both by the hands and the robber girl walked with Kai and Gerda for a time and she promised them that if she was ever anywhere close to their town, she would come and see them again.
0: (laughs) And they're like, "Um, please actually don't. (laughs) Don't.
1: And so Kai and Gerda walked hand in hand as they were walking through this beautiful spring day and there were flowers in bloom, it was green everywhere and they heard the church bells ringing and they looked up and they recognized the tall towers of the town and they realized that they were already back home and they went straight to their grandmother's door and up in the living room, everything had stayed just as it had been the clock in the living room was tick tocking and the hands were moving around and they looked around at themselves and they realized that they had grown up and the roses on the roof were blocking the open windows because they had gotten like overgrown and the children's two chairs that they had once sat on were there and they sat and they held hands forgetting completely the cold, empty splendor of the Snow Queen's castle. And quote, Grandmother was sitting in God's bright sunshine and reading out loud from the Bible. Quote, Unless you become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of God. And Kai and Gerda looked into each other's eyes, and they suddenly understood the old hymn, Down in the alley where roses grow wild, there we can speak with our dear Christ child. And there they sat, and they were grownups and children at the same time, children at heart. And it was summer, warm, wonderful summer. The end. Oh. So you can see that, like, when I'm like, uh, it's like there's a lot of stuff in there about Jesus, um, and Christianity. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty blatant. And it's overt
2: too.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I knew before we did this one, I was like, this one will make an excellent like, like seasonal special because it is going to be unruly long. Um, (laughs) And so we tried to put a lot of the discussion into the story as we were going along to point out the little details. That way we weren't getting to the end of the story and having like a list of instances where (laughs) Norse mythology was mentioned or Greek mythology or whatever. So, Jeff, now that you went through the story kind of like with a heads up, because you had read the story to get ready to retell it, but with the like, yeah. kind of like preamble of information that I gave, like, did you see anything different in the story?
0: Yeah, I definitely did. I was glad that you did that because it did help me see the story differently just in the retelling versus reading to prepare for this episode. Because during my own reading... The Christian symbolism and everything is pretty obvious. You know, I'm tempted to say like, oh, the Christian undertones. It's like, they're not undertones. They're overtones. They are the theme. They are what holds the story together. But the thing that wasn't as obvious was the framing of the story as a whole as being this science and reason versus religion. And going back through, I feel like, oh, man, how come I didn't notice it more? Like, there were things that they felt kind of weird, and I didn't actually, like, think too much on them. Like, when Kai is so scared that the Snow Queen is taking him away that he tries to say his prayers, but all he can say are his, like, multiplication tables. It's, like, clearly, like, oh, this horrible thing. His prayers might have saved him, as we know, because the prayers of, you know, after the whole story, in hindsight, Gerda were able to help her fight off the Snow Queen, You know, but he his head was so full of math and science and logic that he couldn't possibly remember to say his prayers. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it becomes a lot more obvious than the whole fact that like the Snow Queen, the villain of the story at the lake of reason is like where the big final battle takes place. Um, So having it contextualized in that way really did help me see it in a different way, which was interesting because, again, as like, you know, I thought it was kind of a, a, a cool story, a fun story in lots of ways. And, like, you know, I'm a Christian myself, and so, like, I wasn't like, oh, man, this is a story about, like, Jesus and stuff like that. Like, I I could see where Khan's Christianity was coming from. I feel like it was, like, you know, a little over the top and overt for my taste in, like, entertainment. But it's like I could appreciate what he was doing to some extent because I have a similar, like, religious background to him. But then seeing the fact is like, you know, I'm also someone that does believe in science and reason. I think those things are important. And I don't think that science and religion have to be completely at odds with each other. So I think the premise that he was approaching the story at is like kind of flawed and I don't necessarily appreciate it. But all that aside, too, I think is a fun and interesting story. Uh, to go through. And my, you know, reading and retelling of it was enriched for having kind of known this like cultural background and everything and, and knowing what was going on in the world that he was writing it and where he was coming from.
1: Yeah. Because like, like when, when I read that story for the first time, I definitely wasn't thinking about the, the time in like literature or thought that he was writing the story. Like I was 100%, you know, just reading it, I guess a story, and like you said, the, like the Christian elements are like very overt. Nothing, nothing was covert. (laughs) And I've noticed that like a lot in, in his stories. Like it will just like little things like pop up. It's very clear, like where he stood, but because we don't live in that, like, the age of reason, the enlightenment period anymore. Like, and we have made like advances in science so much that when like religion kind of pushes up against some scientific stuff, it's easy to look at like, okay, where did this like religious belief like stem from? And how can I mesh that with what I know like scientifically Yeah. And I feel like we're further along in that conversation that there has been more room for religion. And so like, while he was living in a time where there very much was this like a a big fight. And there are people who would definitely like disagree with me that like on both sides that feel like science is under attack or that religion is like under attack. And so I say like, Oh, we're in a much better place now, but some people might not agree with me. (laughs) But because we don't live in that, like, same, like, time, we're not necessarily thinking, like, like, math and science are of the devil. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's hard to, like, understand that point of view unless you, like, realize that that point of view did exist at a point in time. And it was Hans Christian Andersen's time that it existed.
0: Yeah, and I think there are valuable things to take from some of the things that he was saying that I thought were interesting, like the whole premise of, you know, the pieces of this mirror that kind of distort things and make them just show the flaws and and diminish the beauty of things. And the fact that those shards like get into our eyes and into our hearts and stop us from seeing the beauty of the world. I think there's something that we can really take from that. I don't think it's necessarily always like science, but there are certain things like when we come at everything with this like cynical, skeptical attitude, you know, that can be, I
1: think I have a story that illustrates what I think you're trying to say. So I knew this woman who was always like complaining about something that was just the lens that she like saw the world from it was just this very like negative worldview And she got remarried. And I I had come into her life at a point when she was like in the middle of a very hard divorce. And so I didn't know whether she had always been like kind of like cynical and negative and pessimistic or whether she, you know, was going through like a trauma from like divorce. And so like I didn't know. And after I'd known her for several years, she was getting remarried. And for her honeymoon, she went to Hawaii. And I was so excited for her because like a lot of bad things had happened to her in the years that I had known her Um, a lot of like really hard things. And so I was excited to see like something good happening to her. And when she came back from her trip to Hawaii, we were like, how was Hawaii? Like, how was that? And she was like, "Ugh, there are mosquitoes everywhere in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh no, because like, there are people who approach the world with those like metaphorical shards in their eyes. Yeah. Or in their hearts where when they view everything through that lens, it's not necessarily that what they're seeing isn't true, but they're magnifying
2: Yeah, all of the bad and negative things.
1: So that they're still looking at a distorted image, just like if I look at everything as like with like through the lens of toxic positivity. I'm also distorting the truth and like what's happening, which is like harmful. But I think to like what Hans Christian Andersen was getting at that, like, yeah, looking at everything like through like cynicism and doubt it does not enrich your life necessarily. And I think even like religiously, there's a lot that religion can do to like enrich your life. And if you want to magnify all of the problems that come with religion, you can do that yeah. too. But you are going to still be looking at a distorted image. Yeah. You're because you're going to be magnifying all the negatives inside of a religion. Instead of just seeing it kind of for what it is, which is kind of like a mix of good and bad, like everything else in life.
0: Yeah. And I thought even even taking it a step more towards what Hans Christian Andersen was getting at when you study things a lot, when you are educated, those are that is a great thing. Like you can see the world in ways that other people that haven't had the same, you know, educational opportunities and things as you can't. But also, there is this tendency to make you think, like you talked about at the beginning, oh, some of these shards were turned into glasses that when people put them on, they made it think that they could judge everything better than everyone else or whatever. And there is a degree of that. Like, I feel it in myself a lot of times where it's like, oh, I've been to college, I've done these things, so I know better than maybe someone who hasn't, which is not true. You know what I mean? It it gives you this false sense that, oh, just because I've studied science, just because I've been to college, just because I've done these things, it means that I'm going to be able to be a better judge of how things are than someone else. And that is not true. I think that when you rely so much on the fact that, oh, I know so much you are blinding yourself to the things that you don't actually know. And it's the same thing. Like with the way science really is science, isn't saying like this is, like the absolute answer because science is always going through the scientific process and reevaluating and reassessing. It's like, Oh, here's what we thought we knew, but now we've learned something else, which changes what we knew before. And there's like this humility that you have to have saying like, this is from everything I've learned, the understanding that I've reached at this point, but being willing to change it and realize that just because you may have all this evidence that's kind of backing you up doesn't mean that there's not something that could be presented that would change the way that you see things. So you're not like an absolute perfect judge of a person or of a situation just because you have this education and scientific knowledge. You know,
1: I was just reading about Teddy Roosevelt and how like he grew up really upper class. And so he thought, you know, that he had a pretty good understanding of the world because he was really, like, highly educated. And it wasn't until he started working inside of, like, cities and seeing, like, actual poverty, he was suddenly seeing what, like, real living conditions were like for people who were not wealthy. Yeah. And all of a sudden he was like, oh, my gosh, there are all of these social problems that, like, need to be taken care of, that, like, need to be handled. And I was just reading about, Teddy Roosevelt because uh it's for my my young son's social studies class.
2: <laughs>
1: not because I yeah, not because I was like pursuing knowledge about Teddy Roosevelt, which is funny. Because just now <laughs> in my head I was like, like, what was I researching where that came up? And it was like, <laughs> I wasn't researching, I was trying to help my son with his discussion question for his social studies. So let's talk a, a little bit about the movie Frozen, where there are similarities and why there are probably differences. <laughs>
0: they didn't have the little robber girl in it, which I think was a real missed opportunity. But unlike Hans Christian Andersen, they did have a snowman. So like that eh, kind of balances out.
1: <laughs> so one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was going back and doing research on what the directors have said about the movie Frozen in the early forms was yeah. that they was going to be the snow queen raising up an army of like snow monsters, which nice. I was like, Oh, part of me is like, Oh, I wish I could have seen that awesome monster army because that was a really cool part in the story actually.
3: Oh
2: yeah.
1: Where it's just like all of these like snow monsters, like ice sculptures. I actually found that to be like the most climactic part of like the, the story.
2: Oh yeah. Cause it was funny yeah, yeah. how the
1: queen just was like, well, well, I need to go and take care of some business. Bye.
0: Yeah. The queen is like kind of a non-character for being like the titular character of the story. She doesn't really do all that much throughout most of it.
1: So with the Snow Queen, something I know at the beginning of this, I said that it was reductive to say that everything in the story goes back to Hans Christian Andersen's life. (laughs) But the Snow Queen represents death. And that's not just me saying that, that's Hans Christian Andersen saying that. So, <laughs> in his autobiography, The Fairy Tale of My Life, Hans Christian Andersen described being haunted by the image of like a snow maiden who was this, uh, like a specter of death. And there's a quote that says, I recalled that in the winter before when our window panes were frozen. My father pointed to them and showed us a figure like that of a maiden with outstretched arms. She has come to fetch me, he said in jest. And now while he was lying there on the bed, dead, my mother remembered this and I about it as well. End quote. So he just had this like just really bad memory of like, yeah, when he was a kid being told kind of like this funny story about those, like the shapes that just form on windows because of condensation we used to see them a lot more before windows were double-paned <laughs> but it ended up being kind of this like morbid thing because his dad had like joked about like oh look this one looks like a maiden come to get me and winter is like a very dangerous time for people we've talked yeah. about this on the podcast before people would just die more in the winter time so hans christian anderson's mother would often refer to, like, her husband's death and talk about an ice maiden carried her husband away. Like that, oh, yeah, that's when, like, the, like, ice maiden came and, like, took him away. So Hans Christian Andersen has also written a story called The Ice Maiden, which, again, is a story about a supernatural creature who lives out by like Swiss lakes and glaciers and kisses people to death. And that story has a much sadder ending, but uh, so that is going to like the snow queen was kind of, even though, yeah, kind of like a non-character in the story for Hans Christian Andersen. It was actually like him, describing a character that loomed very large in his life.
0: Yeah. And it's like, even though the character didn't do so much in the story, the character did do everything that started the events of the story. You know, she took Kai away, which is what led Gerda on this big journey to go and rescue him. If that hadn't happened, there wouldn't be a story. So it is like, obviously a very important character. And when you see it too, like you can easily see this as this whole metaphor of, of like death. Like when you, when someone that you know, dies you want to do anything that you can to bring them back and you know that you can't but in this like fantasy world where you can go and you can fight you know death herself to bring your loved one back from the brink of being you know frozen and gone
1: yeah and so some of like the biggest challenges for someone trying to make a movie of this is taking out the like christianity elements and like the story that symbolically is behind all of that because you have a snow queen who takes kai but for what reason yeah because she really doesn't have like a reason for taking him
0: yeah that's true
1: um so you have a lot of characters that kind of lack a clear motivation for what they're doing the only motivation you understand is gerda She wants to get Kai back because she loves him. Whether, like, romantically... Like, it starts off as, like, a childhood innocence, but then it kind of, like, ends with this kind of loose ending that, like, maybe they're in love with each other now that they're grown-ups. Yeah. Maybe not. Like, but they have that love there. And uh, Chris Buck actually said the reason why he made... So, in the movie Frozen... Elsa is both the Snow Queen and Kai.
0: Yeah, she takes herself hostage into her palace of isolation.
1: Yes, and they decide- and
0: Anna has to go and <laughs> rescue her.
1: Yes, and they made them sisters so that there wasn't that weird will-they-won't-they they tension. It's like, no, they won't. Yeah. <laughs> they will not. Uh, so yeah, there's just, there are a lot of- difficulties to turn this into a movie that would be a good fit for a wide audience.
0: I think you touch on the biggest one in the sense that it's like, we kind of like to, especially these days have a reason why our villain is doing what they're doing. It just like, because evil doesn't make for a very compelling story anymore. And I think another aspect of it is too. so much of it is very, like metaphorical like you talked about oh like the palace was miles wide and its ceiling was the
1: northern Northern Lights.
0: lights and its windows were made of the blowing wind you know it's like you can't really do those things in a movie it has to be something that you can actually physically see or it has to be something that can be actually visualized wherein when you're just reading it it's like oh the you can get on with, like, a metaphor, but you need to physically see something on screen to to make it really work. The other thing that would make it so hard to make a really faithful adaptation is just the number of different characters. Like, there are all these different characters that Gerda runs into throughout the whole thing, and few of them really repeat or are there the whole time. Like, she's just with one little group, and then she moves on. Like, she's with, you know, the crow, and then she meets the prince and the princess, and then she moves on and then she's with the robbers and then she moves on, which there is something kind of cinematic about this journey going through these different places and never kind of returning to the same place twice. That's kind of something that you see a lot in movies. Or if you do return somewhere, it's like changed towards like the beginning and the end cycling back from, you know, where they start in their hometown and then returning and they're like adults now. But it does make it so difficult when you just like, don't have any real relationships that she has with, people that endure throughout the whole length of the story besides Kai, who she's not with for the entire story.
1: Yeah. And so it's like either they would have to give her a buddy, like the crow that went the whole way with her or something. Yeah. Or like, yeah, it's, it is just very hard. Cause it's just her, the figure of Gerda moving through this meeting new characters that aren't fully fleshed out and yeah. it's just a lot of little like fragmented pieces which don't give you a whole lot of time to get to know the character.
0: Yeah, I almost wonder if it might work as kind of like a mini series type thing where you could have like for this little section of it, this episode she's with the crow so you can have that relationship during that time and then it kind of like starts over on the next thing with the where the changing relationships might not be as big of a deal, I don't know.
1: Yeah, or in like a mini series where like each character could be with her through several episodes as they pass her along. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So like passing the baton between one and the other. Yeah. it's kind of interesting. It is interesting too, thinking about, again, going back to frozen and the things that were there, like that whole element of the shard being stuck in like the person's head or in their heart, you know, that, that shows up in, in frozen, obviously with like Anna gets like hit and it like goes into her head and, like they have to take them to the magical trolls who are not bad and devilish like the trolls in mm. this, this story, but like to be healed. And they talk about like, Oh, it's really bad. If, like, I think, did you quote it in this I, thing or did you quote it? I don't it know if I quoted we, it kind of exactly,
1: of but I definitely like kind of mentioned that it's like, if it had hit her heart, they're like, Oh, the heart is not so easily persuaded or something like that. Yeah. Um. Or not so easily changed. So before we wrap up, I promised that I would tell you where I think Olaf is in the Hans Christian Andersen canon. So it is clear to me that like the people who wrote the movie Frozen did their homework and read more of Hans Christian Andersen than just the Snow Queen. So I have a theory for where I think the character of Kristoff comes from inside of the story The Ice Maiden. So I have not fully read The Ice Maiden. It is one of the longer Hans Christian Andersen tales. It's like 60-something pages. Mm. But inside of the story, there is a man whose parents die and he is left orphaned because of The Ice Maiden. And in the story, he is looking for love. And basically, like, right before he finds love, he gets a kiss from the ice maiden that then kills him.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: So I'd be so interested to look and see if, like at the original scripts to see if like any of that um also spoiler alert for, if you're reading the ice maiden, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I would love to see uh like an early script and see if any of that plays in or like, know if like, if I am right in that, but that's less compelling than my theory of where Olaf comes from.
0: And this is the one that the people are waiting for yep. and by the people. I mean, me.
1: Yep, this is the only reason why you stayed this whole time through this, like, (laughs) super long, epic podcast. So, inside a collection of Hans Christian Andersen tales, there is a story called The Snowman, and it is the story about a snowman being built, and he suddenly becomes, like, aware of himself as, like, (laughs) being alive And being very much like, what's happening? I've, like, never seen this before. And so there's a dog out in the yard who basically talks him through, like, his first day of, like, being alive. And the snowman, like, looks inside of this house that's nearby. And he's like, what is that inside of that house? And the yard dog is like, oh, that... That's the stove. It's full of fire and it's super hot. (laughs) And a longing leapt up inside of the snowman. And he didn't know why, but he felt like compelled to be with the stove. Like he was meant to be with the stove. And the dog was like, you can't be with the stove. You will melt. (laughs) and the snowman was like i don't know why but there's just like this longing and this aching in my heart and the story is like really really short and i think it's interesting because there's this like one point where in the night the weather kind of changes where it gets a little bit warm and windy but not enough to where like a ton of snow melts it more like turns to ice and then when it refreezes it has this really like um beautiful icy glass like look in like the forest and so Mm -hmm. they're describing the forest it's like trees and bushes were covered with hoar frost and looked like a complete forest of coral and every twig seemed covered with gleaming white buds the many delicate ramifications concealed in summer by the wreaths of leaves now made their appearance it seemed like a lacework gleaming white A snowy radiance sprang from every twig. And as it's like describing this, like diamond dust was strewn everywhere. I can see the scene where Kristoff and Anna actually meet Olaf. And inside the story, right after that section, this young girl and a young man pop up and they're having a conversation with each other, like in the snow. And they say... This is wonderfully beautiful, said a young girl who came with a young man into the garden. They both stood still near the snowman and contemplated the glittering trees. Summer cannot display a more beautiful sight, said she, and her eyes sparkled. And we can't have such a fellow as this in summertime, replied the young man, and he pointed to the snowman. <laughs> the girl laughed. In no- <laughs> summer! Ah, And so then like the snowman kind of was like, ask the yard dog, like, who are those? And the yard dog says, Oh, lovers. (laughs) (laughs) But basically the rest of the story is the snowman just like longing in his heart to be with this stove and just how hard it is. And the yard dog says, that's a terrible disease for a snowman. (laughs) And then, you know, it says, like, the winter did change. It began to thaw. The warmth increased and the snowman decreased. He made no complaint, and that's an infallible sign. But anyway, after the snowman completely melts, you find out that there is the shovel for cleaning out the stove inside of the snowman. It was what was keeping his body up. And Uh that's why he had that longing in his heart. Longing. for To go
0: and be with the stove. Yeah,
1: And so what is interesting when I read that story and I read about, you know, this like forbidden love, I did uh, a little bit of research into the story and I know that I said it's reductive <laughs> to say that all these stories about Hans Christian Andersen, Hans Christian Andersen even said himself that his stories were all biographies or autobiographies, which people are like, okay, he, you know, more or less, but This story he wrote while he was in the middle of starting a love affair with a man in his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was feeling this like longing that he felt in his Christian heart was wrong and bad, but he still wanted to like express that pain that he felt in some way. And so he wrote the story, the snowman about this kind of like forbidden love that if he got too close, it would burn him or Mm -hmm. like melt him, just destroy him. And there are a lot of people for many, many years who have asked is Hans Christian Andersen gay? He never married. And so a lot of people used to ask the question, like, is Hans is Hans Christian Andersen gay? They wanted, like, a definitive answer. And for a long time, people who felt like they had to, um, like, defend his legacy were like, no, absolutely not. I don't know what they're talking about. And what I find aggravating about the question is that Hans Christian Andersen, in his own journal writings about himself, he wrote... Letters of love and longing to both men and women. And some people can argue, oh, well, he only was attracted to the women because he felt like he had to marry a woman to be like a good Christian. And so he never really liked those women. He only ever really liked men. And the thing is, is like, we don't know if Hans Christian Andersen was bi, pansexual, straight, gay, like we don't know because he never definitively said about himself. All we know is that he loved and felt attraction to men and women that he expressed out loud and we don't know. So it's one of those like things that it will come, it comes up in like a lot of conversations about like artists, especially if they're not married because the conversation comes up with the, Grimm's brothers as well because one of them never married and I always find that conversation so awkward because like we're not allowed to just like say or guess about anyone's like sexuality and I feel like we know that more now but like because like historically when people are like oh we want to know is he or isn't he and now we know that like there's so much more than just Like gay or straight. And we don't know, but what we can say is by looking at his works, he had a lot of feelings about it. And there is a lot in there that is uh, interesting and compelling to look at, like through that lens and to look at through the lens of what it was like to be Hans Christian Andersen in the time that he was alive, feeling the feelings that he felt. So whether it was like fear of death in the snow queen or like innocent love or whether it's you know his sexual exploration there's so much of hans christian Andersen, the author inside of his tales that make them really compelling to look at i understand when people who are lgbtq plus <laughs> When they want to know because like it matters to them that there are like historical figures and artists and writers who are writing about the things that they experience now. And they also want to know what it was like for someone who was LGBT back in that time and they don't want to erase that they don't want to erase that people who are like lesbian gay bi, like queer transgender they've existed for a long time. But so often that was sh- considered shameful and so it was hidden and so it's not visible. Mm-hmm. And so when people who are LGBTQ want to know, is Hans Christian Andersen one of us? I feel like that is a very relevant question so that they can like know that that somebody like them existed and was writing material that you know, could be understood, especially by them. Yeah. What I don't like is when people want to know just because they're like, like, oh, (laughs) he never married. Was it because he was gay? Then I'm like, yeah, it it really doesn't matter to you, does it? (laughs) Yeah. But to people who are like, like inside of that group, it is important to know And so I have a hard time with that question when people ask, because I'm kind of like, why do you want to know? Is it because you want to like discredit some of the stuff he was saying, or you want to sensationalize like a discussion around him? Or is it because you want to feel deeply seen by a historical figure who understands you? Because I think that is important.
0: Yeah. And the other thing, too, is like it doesn't even have to be something that you experience yourself, but it helps you understand other people. Like you can through the story and putting yourself like looking at it through the mind of the character, even if it's not something that you've experienced, you can then understand how someone going through that experience would feel, which, again, is a valuable thing if you come across someone that would be feeling things like that for whatever the reason is, you know?
1: Yeah. And I like what you said too, because it is like, even the snowman having a lo- like unrequited love affair with a stove, even though that is yeah. probably a story about Hans Christian Anderson, loving a man who, for who didn't treat him well, like, It's confusing. They were kind of like on again, off again, and it never was like a good solid thing. Yeah. He was kind of like mistreated by this dude, in my opinion. So even though that story is about that, probably there's compelling reasons to believe. Yeah. I can still read that story and also feel That same connection of like, I do know what unrequited love feels like. I don't know what, like, oh, if I actually fell in love with this person, this person would destroy me literally.
2: Yeah.
1: So I I can't fully like understand, but I do get it. Like I, like it's still a good story for me.
0: Yeah. Well, I think one of the great things about it too is, like you said, we can never know, but he wrote things based on his experiences that he was feeling that we can relate to. And it doesn't have to be something that he himself like actually experienced. Cause that's the thing that I really strongly believe about anything. Like, you know, a book or a story or a movie doesn't happen on a page or on a screen. It happens in your mind. It's like the conjunction of these words that lead your mind to think certain things. So it's like, there is this degree to which you can interpret it for yourself so if you find something relatable and meaningful about something that he's written even if it's not you know what the author necessarily intended and it like enriches your life and helps it either make you feel understood or make you feel seen or make you feel more hopeful about life knowing that someone kind of you know felt the same things that you do i think that that's great And it's one of the things that i love about you know reading all these Fairy tales and discussing them is like we can find the things that people were thinking about hundreds of years ago that we can still relate to today that makes me feel like wow we really are part of this same human race that's existing on this earth experiencing the same things as people even though they may be from you know vastly different circumstances there are some of these things about being human that that are the same and you know it just makes me feel closer to these people that I never meet and will never know but you know, it makes you feel this kind of like oneness and unity with, with the planet. And if if I can have such a strong relationship with these people that existed so long ago in so different places, like I can have that with people that are existing in the same world in the same time that I am right now. So,
1: thank you for listening to the Fairy Tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein.
0: Uh, And in this episode, we're going to continue this wintry theme that we've established by retelling the Snow Queen. I was like, all I could think in my brain was frozen, 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 (coughs) frozen, frozen.